name is Commander Graham Bethune. I'm a retired Navy pilot. And um, I had a commercial rating before I came into the military, went through the Navy's training. And uh, when I was flying transports, we had a lot of the airline pilots that we recalled during Korea and things of that nature because they were in the reserve. And so I got an airline transport rating while I was in that squadron because I'd flown every transport to the Navy had. And, and, I, it's, and my, my transport rating is, is single engine land and sea, multi-engine land and sea, and then all planes listed, so most of it I had. Okay, so that, I flew to North Atlantic probably, I guess, uh, including the seaplane, probably about 10 years. I started flying in 1940. And of course, uh, I learned that I got off the ground and everything they taught us was backwards. And I learned a lot of things that that you get off the ground to four or five hundred or a thousand feet and fly around this planet, you'll find out it is saturated with extraterrestrial evidence. But when you're flying at 35,000 feet in a cattle car, you don't see anything, you don't learn anything. So all of these things I learned quick because it was so different when you got off the ground. So I, I was, uh, uh, 1942, uh, I was a, I had a mechanic trace rating, a commercial pilot's rating, and uh, Admiral Reed, the man that flew the, the North Atlantic first pilot, 1919, he's the one that talked me into getting into the Navy, and uh, because of my qualifications, didn't have enough college, so I had to take exam. But I went to the University of North Carolina, along with the older George Bush, uh, along with uh, Ted Williams, a famous baseball player. I could name a lot of, and guess who are athletic instructor was, Gerald Ford. So then I, um, I went through the regular Navy training program, but having a lot of uh, flight hours and experience at that time, I just breezed right through it. It was very easy. Graduated from Pensacola, June 1943. That's the Academy of the Air, Cradle of Navy Aviation. I volunteered because the Navy had started a navigation training program for just navigators. They didn't have any regular, all Navy pilots were trained navigators, and we navigated with the stars back in those days. I first um, left there and I went to a seaplane squadron in Rio. I'd always wanted to go to Brazil. <laughs> and um, we flew 16 hours every third night hunting German submarines. During this period of time, of course, you see things down in the South Atlantic, no UFO chase teams, no uh, uh, particle beams, no satellites. You see things that were not, were not hostile down in that area, so <coughs> we saw a lot of things. In 1945, when I came back, I was on a search for the planes in the Bermuda Triangle. Then I went into transports, and I finally got an airline transport rating in addition to the Navy rating. So I was stationed at Patuxent River, Maryland, 19. 50 when Ed, and we were flying a four engine actually DC 4 R5Ds and later the Super Constellation. They had a large meeting in Washington, D.C. in uh, February, first part of February 1951, where Eisenhower, who was the Supreme Allied Commander, was part of this meeting, and all of, some of the NATO countries, and, and Vice Admiral Hewen Cutter, Harry uh, 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 Radford, who would later become the first Joint Chief of Staff. At this meeting, they had decided to provide Iceland with troops. So I was one of the two sent to Iceland to negotiate 
the logistics of flying troops over there. Now, this was 1952, February the 5th. At the end of this meeting with Lockheed Overseas and, and, and ISIS, I said, could somebody explain to me why you requested troops? And this gentleman from Lockheed Overseas, the, he managed the airport, he said, well, we're seeing these big objects and the monsters, and they had lights, they didn't make any noise, they could disappear, and all these type of things, and God, I said, shit, what is And I said, what kind of a wings? Oh, no, no, they were round, they were circular. So when he said that, I said, oh, hell, you know, we don't have anything like that, because I fly out of the Naval Tester, we test all, and we know where they were drug war. I said, what did our government tell you they were? They said, your government said they were possibly experimental Russian bombers. So we all laughed. So I was the pilot, but we took off at night. And the skies were clear. And um, if 1,400 and something nautical miles, about 300 miles outside of Argentia, uh, Newfoundland, which is right here, uh, I saw like a city on the water in a distance. And of course, you can't make out any lights. But it was a pretty good-sized city. I said, what the hell is this doing out in the middle of the ocean? So I checked with the navigator, and he said, well, just took a three-star fix. We're on course, <clears throat> and we're not near Iceland or Labrador, and we got a 60-knot headwind. And that was it. So he knew where we were. We passed over the weather ship, which gives you the weather report. And part of the weather report in that part of the, the hemisphere is the northern lights. If there's any northern lights activity, they tell you there were no northern lights activity. So here we sit. We sit and look, see, and see, what the hell is this? As we get close to this city, we start to see lights, big circle of lights. What the hell are they doing out here? Thought maybe the Navy was recovering something, you know, a secret. So as we get closer, there were very defined lights, a dozen or so of monstrous circle. And this was 45 miles away. This was about 30 miles away. And then when we got about uh, 15, 20 miles away, the lights went out. Of course, all the heads were behind me, the crews were probably looking at what the hell happened. And so in a, maybe a minute, we didn't see anything. So what the hell happened here? Somebody turned the switch. Next thing we saw was on the water was a little yellow halo in the center uh, where it was really been in the center of that, where whatever it was that was launched came from under the water or it, it came from a large craft on the water. Now, we're about 15 miles away at that time. This thing, a yellow halo, whew, like that, 15 miles in a fraction of a second. I disengaged the autopilot to push the nose over because we were at a collision course. And when I did, I just saw it head on. It's 300 feet in diameter. We knew that. We had a knowing, like somebody was telling us, 300 feet in diameter. So at that time, I heard a hell of a noise. And I said to Fred, what the hell was that? He said, well, the navigator and the radio went ducking, fell, hit their head, one hit their head, hurt their arm, they were shramming on the deck. So I, hell of a noise. I thought it hit us underneath. So I said, well, where in the hell did it go? And Fred said, it's right over to the right. I can see it. I couldn't see it. So it, it drifted forward about five miles from it. never got to the altitude that we were at, a few hundred feet below. And so I began to, to watch it. Well, we knew then it was a friendly encounter. It just wanted us to see it. 
So then I went to, to engage the autopilot again. The magnetic compass was going like this. And the bird dogs, which is direction finder, the two of bird dogs, they were pointing right at this thing, just vibrating like this. So I said, Fred, did you see that coming? He says, hey, it was close, close, close. It was doing this. <laughs> and so I, I went back to the vacuum operator. That's the old airplane, the vacuum operator, hydraulic operator control. So I go back to that. So, so then we sat there and watched it for a while because it just paced us, stayed with us. Al Jones, which was the original plane commander, took my seat. And it was still there. He was watching and as I was walking back aft, he decided he was going to chase it. <laughs> and so he disengaged. When I get back aft, I wanted to see how the passengers were doing. They're all on the right-hand side. They can see it underneath the wing. And then, I, oh, hell, I recognized the doctor back. In fact, he was a, a psychiatrist out of Bethesda Naval Hospital, plus a lot of other things. So I said, I better talk to him first. So I, Cornell said, did you see what we saw back? Doc, he grinned at me and looked me straight down. Yeah, he says, yeah, that was a flying saucer. I didn't look at it. I don't believe in such things. So whew, I went back. I, I said, Al, don't call anybody. Anybody know anything? He'll lock us up so we'll be on around. So he says, too late. I called Gander to see if I could track it by radar. I said, what did they say? They said that we were the only aircraft in the area. And they normally say you're the only traffic in the area. <laughs> And so we knew the cat was out of the bag. When we landed our Argentina, they had flown the, the Air Force in, Captain Paulson, to interrogate. We had to wait on him. So, which we, then we knew that, that they had tracked by radar, or they wouldn't send anybody there. So that's how so we all made our reports. Then when we got back to Patuxent River over here, we had the Intelligence Navy come down. They didn't question any of the uh, uh, passengers. Uh, we had a lot of pilots in the uh, passengers, too. And they tried to question uh, Dr. Moser, and, and I don't want to tell you his name, but he didn't want to talk about it to the doctor. So, so that, as a result of that, the Air Force had made their report. We had to make out individual reports, never saw each other's report. And it went to Washington Navy Intelligence. At that time, the Air Force, we had given them the Flying Saucer Project because they wanted everything it flew, even including my models. <laughs> and. So they were, they had the whole thing. So it went from there, of course, through the chain to right there. Okay, here we go. Eisenhower was familiar with our encounter because he was a Supreme Army commander. He was familiar with all encounters in the, in the North Atlantic. So when he was elected <clears throat> president, he wanted a briefing. That's your MJ-12 document. Vice Admiral Hugh briefed him on what we knew here. So then as a result, we find out that our encounter was orchestrated to show us what the Icelanders were seeing. It took us a long time to figure that out. So they sent they sent a, a group in from um, from another uh, from another universe, and he, and I don't want to get too much in detail there, but it's it's very important. This group. This is the radar scope picture from the Air Force. This group, um, 21 craft, and they were checking us out. They, their mind perceived as they, they could tell your level of awareness and all this type of thing, whether you're ready for anything or what the fear is. All I can say is this is a, an Air Force jet here, and those are, those are saucers around. It's all organized out there, confederations, just like we have different things that organize. So they had to go to another universe. 
that could communicate with us were so primitive. There's no way that they could ever communicate with us unless they had a group that come in that could come into the third dimension. Now, this group, uh, this photograph was August the 13th, 1952. And there were 68 craft. These are the ones that did actual communication with our leaders. And, of course, Eisenhower wanted proof of something. And, of course, he wanted to go out into space. He wanted to go to the other side of the moon to see the bases on the dark side of the moon. So they, here again, they could not do that. They had to get a hold of the Palladians. They have a Palladian connection, which have been here with us for many years. So the Palladians took him from Muroc, which is now Edwards Air Force Base, out to the other side of the moon. Adros was the commander of that, uh, that ship. This is where the decisions were made, because each time that they meet with our presidents, they tell them that they have to get rid of their atomic weapons, or they will not share any more technology, because we make a weapon out of everything that they give us. So that was what was told to Eisenhower. Well, he had doubts, here again, the military-industrial complex, uh, about whether he could pull anything like this, disrupt the economy, according to him, and he was afraid of our neighbor, Russia, at the time. You know, well, they, they said, we'll take care of that. So as a result, the crew on the ground made some big, big mistakes. They were going to confiscate this crap. And so that they turned around and came back. So Eisenhower did not sign with a good group. He finally signed with a, a, another group. So that's how that all ties in. Now, how do I know a lot of this? I was flying when Eisenhower became, uh, became uh, president. The man that relieved him was Admiral McCormick. And that's who I was flying uh, for uh, a little over a year. And of course, you learn a lot from the age. You don't, you don't get a chance to talk to him. And uh, this is this is my aircraft here. It's it's, it's a sleeper. It's a real pleasure, just like Harry Truman's sacred sacred cow. And uh, so that's what I was flying. And so I had kind of firsthand knowledge on a lot of these things because I had a dark, I eventually had a top secret clearance. And the people that I met with their age and everything is a part of the party. They were involved in all of this. So that's how my encounter really f fits in with the, the overall scheme. And uh, uh, I, I, I knew about this, but I was never told or threatened. My wing commander called me in, and he wanted to explain, explain it to him. He says, look, he says, you know that's one thing that you don't talk about, not even to your wife. Well, that was enough for me. I'm in the military. If it was national security, I, that's what I was there for. So I never did talk about it. And, in a, and when I got to Detroit with the Bureau of Aeronautics, hell, it, I was amazed at how many people knew about them. So I finally broke down and talked to the vice president of Ford Motor Company and Tex Colbert, the president of Chrysler, if you have them in secret. That's when I first started. So Major Kehoe <clears throat> had contacted my boss, who was there in Oakland, because we spent a lot of time at Wright-Patterson. <clears throat> and um, my boss was used to go through the project Blue Book and all, all the societies he had because of his knowledge in aeronautical engineering. And he found, a, found, found our report. And he couldn't understand why I didn't want to see it or why I didn't want to see what was the right passion. I said, well, I can't ever talk about it, so I'm not going to worry about it. This is my report. The, the, these, these documents here you see are out of the archives. They accidentally... Hid, they hid it, and they couldn't find it. They put in Project Twinkle. <laughs> and 
And so my boss had found it down at Wright-Patterson, so I knew it existed. And that's the first time I knew what speed that they checked track it at radar. They tracked it in excess of 1,800 miles an hour. So the weather report and everything else I found out, but I didn't find a radar report. So based on that, I've got the whole history in here, Major Keogh's report to Congress. I've got Admiral, uh, uh, Vice Admiral Healing Cutter's report in Major Kehoe's book that he was going to go before Congress with it. I've got uh, Kehoe's book, Flying Saucers, Top Secret, because the whole first chapter of Flying Saucers, Top Secret, is devoted to our encounter. And they didn't fortunately mention our names. They gave us a fictitious name because we were still on active duty. So they were still after me to go forward. And so when they, when they, when I, I'm a vice admiral healing cover, finally gave in to the Air Force, I thought, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just not going to say anything. I first told somebody it was Michael Hespin, because all the astronauts would go to London, go to Germany to give their story, because they couldn't give it here. So that's how it got to be known. And then the young kids on a computer found Timothy Good's report. Incidentally, his report that he got was declassified under an executive order. Whereas the Air Force had a regular downgrading ever so many years, you know. And so so it, it's a, it's everywhere I looked, it's in every, every kind of book that you can imagine. I even got a copy recently of a comic book, so that makes it official. It's as long as it's in the comic book. The, what happened is I had a home, a photographer, about 50 air miles from here. And I was working on, on a room. I didn't have a TV on and it came on the news and his voice. And he said basically he knew that the people were concerned about what was flying over Washington, D.C. and that they could be assured that there's really nothing to worry about, that we know all about it. They're not here to harm us. Very short, maybe three or four sentences, and that was about, about it. So which led us to believe in his statement. Okay, the government knows what it is. That's all we care about. We trusted the government then. What the president said, was right. So that's what happened. In reality, he had no choice. He could not really, without getting bumped off like Kennedy, uh, have done anything other than what he did. And he thought maybe he could work it out, but it was really the military-industrial complex that he was up against, plus the people that have the money. So that's where he said, okay, my communication is not directly, I never, have never wanted it because I think my credibility would really be destroyed pretty quick if I start talking about that. So my communications with a lot of beings that have incarnated here from the Pleiades, Syria, Adromanus, and God knows what. And a lot of these are channelers, too, or mediums. I don't take too much stock in that because anybody can communicate with them. A lot of them are disembodied spirits, and they're looking for a body to get. So if you want to really communicate, that's usually who you get. But these beings, um, uh, they... Do, if you're familiar with remote viewing, I know they're the top remote viewers. I've asked them for years. Can, I was always told you could not remote view these things in our inner earth because they're a different dimension. Not all of them. There's some third dimensions in our inner earth, 237 cities. So my question always has been to them, uh, if I come here in my ship and I've got a lot of work to do here and I don't want to go back, which maybe four hours, Four, four, four light years away is less than four hours in their craft. And I said, I, I got an inner earth base now. In order for me to go into the inner earth base, I got to raise my vibrations or frequency. Can you find my base? 
And every one of them said, the top one says, yes, we can, we can remove the UV. I was always told that you couldn't because you couldn't see anything in another dimension. He says, that's not true. I said, well, why won't we hear from you? He said, well, to start with, nobody would believe us. The second thing, nobody, uh, we don't have any proof of it. We can't show, show anything because they're a different dimension. So that bugged me. I thought, well, I hear these guys can tell me what we saw. It came from a submarine base, uh, our, our, our encounter. That's where they were based. Two different universes had that particular. So through dealing with the Palladians at 23rd dimension and up, they could travel through the black holes, 500. Uh, uh, these people here were 333 dimensions. And, and, and they, they can travel that way. Well, since that's the case, they don't, their remote viewing is energy. Uh, the thing is that, as I said, when we were down in the South Atlantic, we were seeing things we'd never seen before. And we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even mention it to each other. In other words, if I mentioned it to the copilot, I would be afraid that he wouldn't want to fly with me anymore. <laughs> in the same way. And, and, and so, so all, about all the pilots, every time I got in, after we retired and we had these reunions, is when we started talking about what we were seeing. But if you fly any, any period of time, now I'm not, not I'm saying 35,000 feet in the cattle car, I'm sitting down low where we were flying. And if you navigate with the stars, you're constantly seeing things in the heaven. So back in the days I was flying, it was very common. My dad was in World War I. When I told him about the Foo Fighters, he said, explain those Foo Fighters to me. He was over in France, Eddie Rickemeyer's one mechanic. I uh, so explained, oh, he said, oh, hell, we call those Kraut fireballs in World War I. And some of, like, Frank Edwards, a lot of these people could tell you stories. More, they saw more than we did. So these things have been around since we have about eight and a half million years. They brought us here. <laughs> this is going to be hell on Earth. The world's toughest test. That's a long way down. He's back. This is not a game show. Special Forces, world's toughest test. Only Mondays at night on Fox and watch anytime on Hulu. I've always been prone to hair thinning. I'm genetically predisposed. I just gave birth. I was under a lot of stress. I started taking Nutrafol. We test our formulations with the highest rigor of clinical trials and with the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement. And you're still becoming taking me back to the I am Jaime Maussan. 
I am a Mexican journalist. I have worked as a as an investigative journalist since 1970. I've been working in the Mexican television in Televisa since 1972. I became the head of the program 60 Minutes in 1985. I worked there since 1980 as a reporter. I was able to present uh, probably two or three hundred documentaries, an hour-long documentaries, over that 17 years. Because of that, uh, I received three times the National Award on Journalism in Mexico, uh, and a special recognition from the Capitol Hill in Washington, and a special recognition by the UN uh, because of my achievements uh, in the protection of environment with the Global 500 Award. Uh, since then, since 1991, I've been working with the UFO phenomena in Mexico uh, that is really happening every day somewhere in, in around the country. But what has been more important for me is that this flap has been recorded in video. It means that we have evidence to prove that something is really happening in the Mexican Republic. Uh, I realized in 1991, in the total solar eclipse, when uh, many people recorded UFOs, that uh, uh, the video camera had become the most important instrument to really capture this uh, new reality. I believe because it was in the hands of so many million people in Mexico and around the world, with time we would be able really to prove that this was an absolutely reality, an absolute reality. And that I can tell you after 14, 15 years that we think we have been able to at least prove that something weird, strange is happening in Mexico. Even the Mexican army, the Air Force in Mexico, recorded UFOs, that the, the video was given to me, and I released that to the world. Uh, with that video, we were able to prove that not just the regular citizens, but even the very sophisticated planes from the Air Force in Mexico, planes that are used to, to capture narcotics in the south area of the country, they were also able to record these strange objects. In that case that happened on March the 5th, 2004, uh, the soldiers were able to record something that they couldn't see with their own eyes. And that's amazing. That was the first time someone recorded something that it wasn't, they weren't able to see. Uh, in July 17, 2004, a very young man, which uh, his, his name is uh, Pedro Avila, was able to record one object with two different cameras over the same tripod. But with one of the cameras, the, with the, the camera with the normal spectrum, he couldn't see the object. But he was able to see the object through the infrared camera, very similar to the video recorded by the military 
that proves that even sometimes there are objects that we cannot see with our own eyes, but they are there, they are watching us. Um, in the last months in Mexico, after thousands of videos, since uh, the end of 2004, probably August 2004, we have been registering uh, some of the most spectacular videos from the last 15 years. In some of these videos, uh, one recorded in June, June the 10th, 2004, the other June 21st, 2004, you can see hundreds and hundreds of objects making formations and flying together exactly uh, the same thing that you can see in the military video. These formations moving at the same speed in the same direction uh, uh, at the same altitude. Uh, in June, we recorded uh, these two videos, and again, in uh, I believe it was February 27, we were able to record uh, 120 objects flying. Uh, more than 300, 400 kilometers an hour, probably two, 300 miles an hour, uh, over Mexico City. Uh, the video is very spectacular. Again, in October 27, 2004, we were able to record a, a huge, I mean a huge creature, probably 500 meters long or 300 meters long, releasing hundreds of spheres. This creature is quite we could call a dragon or a serpent, a flying serpent, over the skies of Mexico City. Even was so big, huge, I say, this wasn't, the, the radar wasn't able to capture the, the, the image of this uh, serpent in the sky of Mexico City, very near downtown Mexico City. Uh, the same kind of creature was recorded again in November 20th, 2004. Uh, regarding the sightings in the Yucatan Peninsula, we have been able to get two incredible videos with a circular shaped object with lights. Uh, in both cases, it's exactly the same. Sony, many people have seen this object in the Yucatan Peninsula, in the Yucatan area. And it's amazing because this uh, appeared after the 3rd of August 2004, exactly when we had this Mayan calendar in England. <clears throat> we believe both events are related for some reason. We believe the Mayan calendar that uh, we saw in England, it's uh, some kind of uh, advice to tell us that the end of the Mayan calendar is very near in 2012, and we believe that probably in 2012, something is gonna happen. We don't believe in the destruction of the world of the human beings. We believe in a change. Probably the rising of the sea level, as uh, we heard in the news just uh, 10 or 15 days ago, when uh, it was announced that if the melting of the ice caps continues, by 2012, we will have the first problems with the rising of the seas, especially in the, uh, in the city areas like New York, 
Miami, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and in many other areas in Mexico, Cancun, Veracruz, Acapulco, and probably just around the world. Uh, as you know, has been predicted that many islands uh, are going to disappear, and this is not deb debatable, it's uh, a scientific truth. For that reason, we think that at this moment, uh, we should be trying to understand what this presence means, because so far we have been just discussing if it's real or if, if it's not real. And I think it's time to pass to a different level. And that level is trying to understand what is going on, what is happening. We have enough evidence, and I can prove that with data and, uh, and, 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 and knowledge of the existence of the phenomenon. We believe it comes from out of this world. We cannot prove that, but we believe it's from somewhere else. And we believe it's trying to communicate with us. On January 14, 2004, we had this big flower in the sky. Six objects making a flower, uh, a huge flower in the sky. Nobody has been able to explain that. Just 15 days later, in January 21, 31, 2004, we had six objects making a delta formation over Mexico City. Uh, probably spheres making this delta formation. For all those reasons, uh, we think uh, we should try to understand again what is happening. On March 31st, 2003, we had uh, an incredible sign in the Volcanic Tlaxihuatl where we saw uh, somehow a message in all Hebrew. Uh, this message was sent to Israel, and the answer we received is that said something like, on the 9th, the dragon will be born. That has been analyzed by the people who, who made the Bible code, and they have explained that the dragon is the one that brought the knowledge to the old Hebrews, and that the 9th is probably a region in the world. Then, probably, that region is Mexico, because Mexico has a serpent in the, in, the, in, the, in the flag, in the symbol, national symbol. We love the serpents from the old cultures with Quetzalcoatl or Kukulkan, excuse me. Uh, we also have the largest numbers of uh, species of serpents in Mexico for all that reasons. We believe that probably what that message said is in Mexico, the knowledge will be born. And that is amazing when you connect that to the incredible activity we have been watching in many different cities in Mexico. Even the people in the tower of control of the airport in Mexico know about this. The pilots know about this. But outside Mexico, very few know what is really happening. We have to remember that on February 14th, 2000, uh, a huge UFO landed in the middle of the school near downtown Mexico that at least uh, 12 policemen saw very near this thing that we have official papers recognizing that this really happened. Even seven journalists that were with the policemen
can uh, witness that they saw this object landing in the middle of the school, which proves that uh, uh, really something is going on in Mexico. We have also new videos from that same area in the city as Capotzalco, where you can see these huge objects flying around that place. That's what I, I can tell you about what is going on in, in my country. And I hope uh, what is important is to look to the evidences, analyze, and I think it's time for the scientists and the academics to go and take a good look at what is happening there. I believe because the activity is so intense that it's going to grow. I believe something is going to happen in Mexico. I don't know if it's because the people are ready for a contact or even before communication. We are ready to send new information to the cosmos as Frank Drake and Carl Sagan did on November 16, 1974. We have developed, with the help of some scientists, information to be sent to the stars. However, we haven't found the facilities uh, or the possibilities to do it. Then I think if we can receive some help from investigators and, and scientists and people from other areas in the world, we could establish, we could start some kind of communication. I don't want to sound crazy because this reality is almost fantastic. Uh, it's almost like fiction, but it's real. Fortunately, we have been able to, to get all this information in tape. We now in Mexico have produced uh, three different cases where you can see creatures being photographed with digital cameras. These pictures were taken by very simple people. When you present them, it's very easy to debate them because when you see something that is not human, you say, ah, it's not true. But they were taken, but one was taken by a 14-year-old kid. The other was taken by a, by a young man who is a, profe a professional in radio. Uh, and the other one is anonymous. But the three are incredible. And they tell you how close they are from us. And I think it's going to be more and more. And I think it's time to listen to them and try to to establish this communication. We won't have any contact until we have communication. And we have to, to try to identify the signs, the, the, sign, the signs that uh, are in the sky and sometimes physical to try to answer these signs. Otherwise, we are losing very precious time because if really, as the Mayans said more than a thousand years ago, something happens uh, with a big change in the world, especially with the rising seas, uh, we're going to suffer very much.
I want to bring your attention to to the next equinox on March 21st because we have to remember that the old people in Mexico and North America like to to measure the position of the sky I mean the position of the sun related to the earth to know if our planet was in the right position and uh, very soon we will know if this tsunami earthquake didn't move the earth enough to create uh, a new change probably around the the weather the the climate that could also uh, create more problems as we see that uh, everything seems to be changing with the global climate uh, and I believe that uh, if we have a change in the seasons then with the, all the carbon dioxide and the increasing uh, activity of the sun all of this together uh, it's going to create a very difficult future I hope I mean I want to be humble I don't want to, to try to look like uh, something who doesn't know what he's talking to but that's the way it's really happening in Mexico. Because I work in the media, because I was a journalist, because they respected me and I had credibility. Because I have a television show every Sunday night in prime time, 7 to 9 p.m., and it's national. And it's on the air. For that reason, uh, I have been able to change in many ways the perspective of Mexicans who are now starting to believe that something is really going on. Even very serious people, even very academic people, even some scientists are now watching to the new evidence with new eyes. And I think it's the time to do that. And that is why, well, I call the attention to them and others to, to investigate. Don't believe my words. Uh, you have to be very skeptical about what I say, but you should be investigated, otherwise you are not a scientist. I mean, that's the problem now. Everybody thinks that they know what is going on. They know that this phenomenon is not true just because they want to believe it's not true, but they are not investigating. And that's the problem with the scientists. They remind me of those who didn't want to see through the telescope of Galileo because they knew it was not true. Why should I lose something that is not true? That's exactly what the scientists are doing now. I mean, they don't want to look at the evidence, and that's when it's very difficult to prove anything. Because they don't look, they don't say, but now, when I have this chance to hit the conscience every week, every Sunday night in Mexico, things are now changing and moving. And with that program, I am receiving the evidence all around the country. It's like a magnet. And very soon, through that media, through that program, we're going to present the, probably the most impressive evidence ever.
Richard Souter. Uh, for several years, since about 1992, I've been researching underground bases, and in recent years also uh, the topic of underwater bases and tunnel tunnels. Understood clandestine facilities in these instances. I uh, first got interested in this topic in a big way in the late uh, 1980s when I moved out to the American Southwest uh, to live and to study. And I heard people talking about this for the first time in my life as if these things really existed and in a major way. This was something little new for me and it caught my attention. I uh, pricked up my ears figuratively and literally, but I really didn't have time in my schedule to pursue these questions uh, during that period. Well, after a, a few years went by, I did have a little more time in my schedule. I had a little more free time, and I decided that I was going, going to examine the issue and see if, see if there's any truth behind these questions. So uh, I went to a good research library and started looking into some magazines and newspapers and, and uh, government documents and so forth. And lo and behold, I discovered, indeed, there are underground facilities and installations uh, operated by various agencies of the federal government and also major corporations. Well, I found that interesting, and I actually, in the summer, early summer of 1992, visited a few of these places, I believe almost all on the, on the East Coast and Mid-Atlantic mid region. I didn't actually go underground. You can't do that without a security clearance. When I said that I visited them, I mean I did a drive-by, you know, drive down the road and look at look at the um, security threats. But I verified to my satisfaction that some of these things did exist. I wrote a short article on that subject for UFO magazine uh, that's published out of Los Angeles, edited by um, Vicky and Don Ecker. So in the article I said, well, you know, I can't prove anything about alleged little aliens uh, underground hurtling through uh, clandestine tunnels and, and supersonic uh, tube, tube shuttle trains. But I can say that there are indeed underground installations operated by a variety of government agencies and also uh, some corporations. So the article was well received, I thought. It appeared in November of 1992, and at that point, 
I felt like I had very much been there and done all of that. I felt I had comprehensively covered the subject and discovered what there was to feasibly discover, and I was prepared to move on to other things, having uh, scratched that itch. Well, the last week of 1992, just several weeks later, I was awakened out of a deep sleep. This was the week between Christmas and New Year's. And uh, I lived alone, and there was no one in the apartment besides me. And I was awakened out of a deep sleep by a voice in my ear that told me, very matter-of-factly, uh, the underground bases are real, just like I'm saying it now. The voice speaking to me was uh, right in my inner ear. Uh, the perception was much like um, if you're listening to a little transistor radio and you have that little plastic earpiece that you stick in your ear, um, it was a quiet little voice like that, distinct but not loud. Um, so um, I had no problem hearing it. it was, I was the only one there. It was the middle of the night. It was very quiet. It was just me and, and the quiet voice uh, in the night. So that was quite an opening line. And, and of course, I, because I had very recently written an article on the topic, it, it was clear to me immediately what the voice was talking about. Um, and the voice went on to say, indeed, there are uh, underground facilities, installations, bases, and so forth, and that there are people living and working down there, carrying out uh, projects and programs. And um, most people are unaware of this, but if they did know, they would be very surprised and amazed to know all that was happening. And he gave me, I say he because it was the voice of a man, which sounded like the voice of an adult male Caucasian speaking normally accented late 20th century North American English. In other words, it could, could have been any, any one of millions of men. Um, and a well-educated voice. He was speaking standard English, uh, grammatically correct with a uh, illiterate vocabulary. Um, and he went on to tell me that uh, indeed these facilities are there and there are people living and working down there in this I got the impression of quite a lot of activity and a large number of people and, and big facilities, really, really serious business. I also got the impression from what he told me that there were corporations involved, government agencies, and I remember laying there and, and, and in the dark just listening to this voice as if I was listening to a radio broadcast over transistor radio. And I was thinking, man, this is quite something. Um, I wonder if it can be true. And of course, I was thinking also as he was talking, who is this guy? And uh, I didn't really wonder how I was hearing his voice. I already had a pretty good idea that it had to be some kind of electronic transmission. It never seemed purely telepathic. It never seemed like a a mind-to-mind -mind transmission, so to speak, or brain-to-brain. -brain. It seemed, and I can't tell you exactly why, but it seemed, well, perhaps because it sounded like a radio broadcast. Um, so much so that I was thinking it is some kind of radio transmitter he's using, only he's targeting my mind with it. I now know that there, indeed there are such electronic devices. This is not science fiction. In fact, I reproduced this patent in two of my books. It's called Hearing Device, but a more apt title for the patent would be Brain Transmitter. Um, and indeed it describes a, a pulsed microwave electronic device by which intelligible sound, voice included, can be broadcast to the auditory cortex of the human brain. 
And I believe um, quite strongly that a device like that was used to transmit a very interesting broadcast to my mind. Well, that made a strong impression on me, needless to say. And when this gentleman stopped speaking, I, uh, not having much else to do, went back to sleep. The next morning, I remembered clearly what had happened uh, during the night a few hours before and determined then and there that I was going to look into this. So I began a document search, uh, methodical uh, investigative research that really hasn't ever ended. I've been at it by fits and starts ever since. Uh, I now have a literal mound of documentation books, articles, uh, 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 newspaper articles, uh, information off the internet, internet information from corporations, uh, military documents, documents I got from the Freedom of Information Act, documents out of government archives, presidential archives, uh, NASA archives, so many different sources, anecdotes from people, letters I've received anonymously in the mail, emails, uh, casual conversations at, at conferences, and I've been as surprised at the number of times I've run into people face-to-face uh, -face in the course of my everyday life who had pertinent information. I now understand there's a lot going on underground. Near the beginning of my research, I had people telling me, just so-called ordinary people, not people with any official government position or, or high station in the military or an, an, important, uh, an important job for a major corporation. Um, just the run of the mill, uh, so to speak, man or woman in the street that you would meet in the course of your everyday life. And people began telling me, Richard, you know, it's the United States Navy. They're the ones that are really heavily involved underground. And I was thinking, see, this was way back in the early 1990s. And I was thinking, you know, these are nice people. They seem well-intentioned, but you know, they're so addled. They just don't know what they're talking about because the Navy does have its sphere of influence and operations, and that's the deep blue sea. Well, I now understand that, indeed, um, those people may have known something about what they were talking about because I have found some documentation indicating Navy interest in going underground on firm land. Um, and I cite uh, one of those documents in a couple of my books. Uh, the document, the one document comes out of the um, late 60s or early 70s, and it talks quite forthrightly about the Navy going underground multiple levels down because many of their installations on land are hemmed in. Uh, and while they have the entire sea to roam about uh, when they're uh, cast, up, cast away from the dock, on land, uh, true, their bases are limited in extent from the standpoint of the real estate that they legally control. So by going underground, they have access to more space. So from a purely pragmatic standpoint, uh, they had a vested interest in doing that. And I picked up on that in one of the documents I found in my archi archival research. Well, subsequently, I uh, ran across another document, um, none of this classified, by the way, an open source document from China Lake Naval Weapons Station talking about the rock site plans, uh, plans for so-called rock site bases. And this is circum or circa 1966 or so. And the idea was to go down under uh, the, the deep sea, actually, well out to sea, and go down into the rock, the bedrock 
uh, beneath the sea floor and to go down even hundreds or maybe even a thousand or two thousand feet down into that bedrock there to make tunnels, um, hollow out, excavate big chambers for living and working, whatever the Navy does, including huge um, docks and berths un deep under sea to pull in entire submarines or multiple submarines um, and dock them there along with the crews um, and use it as a base of operations way down there. And that was as of 1966. And the Navy was speaking of these plans as if they had the technological capability then. Um, this is 40 years ago of doing this, of actually taking submarines into these bases um, under sea through huge pressure locks. Uh, and if you know, even then, the Navy's um, submarines, the big boomers, so, so to speak, were huge, hundreds of feet long, maybe 100 feet tall, three, four, five, six hundred feet long. These are very large vessels. And so we're talking about pressure locks, hundreds or even thousands of feet under sea that can accommodate these kinds of uh, deep sea ocean going vessels. Now that's 40 years ago. I have to believe the technology has only gotten better since that time. Now I have gotten indications that there are um, facilities like this out there. It would be my guess uh, no one, I would say, and I want to, want to be clear about this, no one has told me, whether in the Navy or out of the Navy, that they have built these types of facilities. Uh, but I've gotten scuttlebutt here and there, um, and uh, from non-Navy sources as well. I want to make that clear, that um, deep-sea manned facilities are out there, or should we say out and down there. Now, what's happening in them? I don't know, but the indications that I get are some, some large and powerful corporations are involved and certainly government agencies. I wouldn't limit this to the United States Navy at all. Um, the information I have, not least of which the Navy's own documentation, strongly indicates their, their very real interest in doing that. So I'm guessing the Navy has done that. But I, I have other information that suggests that it's not only the Navy, but others as well including ones you might not immediately think of. Now, what's being done in these bases, whether uh, deep undersea manned bases or the deep um, bases, uh, secret bases on land, well, those are big questions that I don't have ready answers to. I have some ideas uh, from the standpoint of UFOs. There's certainly many stories from abductees, and I might add some of these stories are pretty credible. I've talked to some of these people. And there are many stories of people being abducted into underground bases where they have seen, in some cases, UFOs or purported aliens or United States military personnel or other humans whose organizational affiliation is indeterminate. Uh, so this is, a, this is a case where there are many questions. The ans answers don't come as easily as the questions, but I, I can assure you, I do have some answers and I can tell, tell you with 100% uh, confidence that indeed there are underground bases and there are clandestine underground bases and that I have strong reason to believe that there's some highly unusual activities taking place in these secret installations and I believe that that would be a major re reason why they are. 
secret. And I also have strong reason to believe that uh, this underground base stuff exists and extends offshore beneath the sea bottom as well. Five celebrities are left in the Special Forces season finale. I will do everything in my power to make sure that I do not lose Who can last just one more day? It's getting real. The shocking season finale of Special Forces, Monday on Fox. Yes, well, as part of my archival research, I've run across, uh, actually have, a couple of declassified project paperclip memoranda from 1947, uh, from uh, mid-June 1947. And both memoranda unambiguously request um, so-called German technicians, ex-Nazi, ex-Nazis understood, uh, who were involved in a civil engineering capacity during the Third Reich. Uh, one of them, in fact, was one of Hitler's right-hand men, not so well-known uh, publicly as other famous guys like Speer, Goebbels, or Goering. But this guy was a high-level, um, had a high-level uh, responsibility uh, and did a lot of the engineering projects during the Third Reich um, and was specifically requested, along with other uh, German uh, engineering technicians, uh, to come over uh, I'm speaking Xaver Dorsch, to come over to the United States to work on what the Air Force called in 1947 the Underground Plant Program, which was then already underway. Um, and his, his expertise and expertise of some other Germans was requested to help further that program and carry it out. Now, now you, like I, can speculate as, as to what was involved uh, as far back as 1947 in the underground plant program of uh, the United States military. I have some ideas. Uh, I think almost certainly nuclear weapons would have been involved in that uh, development, manufacture, research. Um, I don't know that. I'm surmising that. The memoranda do not specify. But I would also surmise that there were almost certainly other secretive activities being carried out even then for which they wanted and were building highly secure, super secret, uh, deep underground facilities. And think about it. We're going back almost 60 years there. And as of that date, more than half a century ago, they already had these types of programs and projects well underway. So this type of activity has been going on for a long time. It's continu continued straight down through the years and decades. Well, you have to understand that uh, German civil engineering technology in the 1930s and 1940s was very good. Uh, the Germans were quite good at underground excavation. Uh, they still are. Um, and even before the beginning of World War II, uh, the Germans uh, had done quite a lot of underground excavation, underground tunnels and building underground facilities, command centers, and mil military um, types of installations. They continued that during World War II. Um, and expanded what they had done before the war. It's amazing that under the onslaught and the, the savagery of a, of a major war, uh, and, and World War II was a tremendous conflict. It's, it's amazing that, that under that type of um, duress that the Germans were able to construct as many underground facilities as they did. Uh, but they did. How they did it, um, I can only tell you their engineering was quite good. Of course, during the war, they used a lot of captive slave labor. Um, but even allowing for that, uh, it's, it's amazing. And what 
happened when the Americans went into Germany in 1945 and 46 when they uh, invaded and uh, defeated the Third Reich and then militarily occupied a lot of Germany, not all of it, because the Russians, French and English had their zones as well. But the Americans occupied a lot of the country and they overran many of these installations and facilities and um, realized early on, early on uh, what they had found. And it was amazing. Uh, some of these facilities had miles of corridors and tunnels, living, living accommodations, uh, working areas, electronics facilities, um, telephone exchanges, um, recreational facilities. Um, and then there were also um, the deep bunkers uh, for constructing and, and firing V-2 missiles and things like that. And so the Americans were quite amazed and impressed by this and other German engineering. And that was one of the reasons for Project Paperclip. Uh, the American army said, we have to bring these guys over. What they did for Hitler, we want them to do for Truman. And it was so. It happened very quickly. They began bringing them over one plane load after another, just wave after wave of Nazi engineers and scientists. Um, it went on for years. And the memos I found uh, pertain to a subsequent wave of multiple waves uh, in 1947, uh, requesting the presence of some experts, engineers, scientists, that for whatever reason they hadn't evidently brought over to date, but wanted to. It was an ongoing program. It was not an, a one-shot deal. It went, went, up, went on over a period of years. And uh, as programs and projects were started or developed or continued here in the States, evidently they were issuing memos that said, oh, by the way, and we went you know, Dr. So-so-and-so, and this and that engineer, and, you know, dozens of them in, in the memos that I've seen. And uh, I, I did recognize three of the names uh, who were definitely involved in major policies and programs here in the United States in the post-World War II period, uh, which w leads me to wonder about the other names on the lists that I don't recognize, uh, but who undoubtedly were experts in their field and, and, and whom the Americans wanted. So th that fact in itself leads me to believe that there were other programs, there were other projects that to this day probably remain classified and we don't know about. Project Paperclip had facets and implications and ran down trails that I'm still discovering and look, we're more than half a century down the line. I think um, we can take some examples um, from some of the better-known, well-known, publicly-known underground bases, and there are a number of them um, that were built in the 50s and 60s, so already we're talking about technology that's basically half a century old, uh, 50s and early 60s. We're talking about technology that's 40 to 55 years old. Um, but even then, uh, Mount Weather, for example, uh, in northern Virginia, uh, now operated by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management uh, Administration, is can accommodate a couple thousand people, a literal, a literal town underground, uh, with, in terms of, of of water for the facility's use, they actually have uh, small ponds that are hewn out of the water underground, and you can actually row rowboats around in them. Uh, they have miles of of uh, corridors and and hallways and streets that get around with small um, electrically powered carts 
There are sleeping quarters, recreation quarters, workrooms with supercomputers, um, <clears throat> radio studios. Um, it literally is a self-sufficient small town, hundreds of feet underground, that was built half a century ago. Uh, another example would be the Pentagon's alternate uh, command center, which is deeply buried underground on the Maryland and Pennsylvania border, so-called Site R or Raven Rock. It's a facility, facility associated with Fort Ritchie. Here again, you have a large facility, virtually a self-enclosed small town deep underground. Um, it's been there for decades, for years and years. It can accommodate several hundred people, over a thousand people. Um, when they're buttoned up, I've e even heard figures running up to 2,000 people. Another example would be the massive base underground beneath Cheyenne Mountain out in Colorado, uh, the NORAD facility, which appears in popular films, feature films from time to time, um, which is also quite large, which has actually virtual um, office buildings underground on huge uh, shock spring springs that weigh thousands of, of pounds. Um, and these stories are multi-story build buildings underground, and this is another facility that can accommodate a couple thousand people and has supercomputers, sophisticated electronics, living quarters, working quarters, um, and those would be three examples of very large, huge underground bases that are really self-contained, high-tech small towns. Um, and we know of those from the public record. Um, there are others uh, like that that are classified. I know this from my own research. Um, how many? I don't know. Exactly where? I don't know. But I can tell you with 100% conviction and confidence that these places exist. And what's happening to them? I don't know. I don't know, but I can tell you from my research that in these super secret, uh, deeply buried, large clandestine facilities, there are unusual activities going on. That I can tell you. I just don't know exactly what those unusual programs and projects are. You know, I started looking into maglev trains some years ago because the stories, the rumors that keep surfacing about uh, an alleged uh, deep underground, super secret, super high speed um, train system or tube shuttle transportation system here in North America, these stories are very persistent. And when I first heard them, they seemed fantastic to me. I didn't know much about maglev technology uh, when I started. I, I guess I knew the word, but, and I had a concept of what was involved in, from an informed layman's perspective, but I really ha had no idea as to whether these things were being built or what the extent of planning for them might have been. I know that if you look around the United States, you don't see high-speed maglev train uh, transportation systems. They're not here. Uh, they weren't 10, 15 years ago, and they're not here today. So I knew the term and had a general idea of what was involved, and that was about it. So people said, however, that these things were in use secretly, deep underground, like a coast-to-coast -coast, um, red-eye shuttle for the exclusive use of top-secret use of clandestine military projects and alleged aliens that, that they're working and consorting with. Um, I thought those were incredible stories, and it, just to say it now, it still sounds incredible. And I can't tell you that that's happening. What I can tell you is, Lo and behold, during my research uh, on underground high-speed elevators, and they do exist, there are elevators 
that go underground pretty fast. Um, through a somewhat circuitous trail, paper trail, I discovered that way back in the 1930s, in 1938, when the Third Reich was just getting rolling, that there was a German engineer by the name of Hermann Kemper who took out Reich's patents for this. Um, and I have them. I have the old German patents. Back in the 1930s, he was given patents for a supersonic underground maglev tube train shuttle that the Nazis were planning to build way back in the 30s and 40s. And this actually appeared in the German popular press. Not only did this man uh, get official government patents from the Third Reich, but he also was written up in the popular press of, of the day. And um, he actively researched it, including during <coughs> World War II. Uh, and the research continued after the war. Uh, was taken over by um, the uh, British and the Germans themselves and to a lesser degree, at least officially, the Americans. Not only that, but as of the period 1939 to 1943, he was actively working on trying to engineer a system that would go, keep in mind this is over half a century ago, 1,200 miles per hour underground through these magnetic levitation tube shuttle trains. The idea was you would make a, a tunnel underground you would seal it off and evacuate the air so that you would have a pneumatic tunnel um, that you could run a train through at high speed, but then you wouldn't have air friction. You wouldn't have friction, which would make it much more efficient. You wouldn't have to worry about heating up the train from friction, like the space shuttle has to worry about when it re-enters re the Earth's atmosphere, because you'd be moving at a very high rate of speed. And it would be so much more efficient, and you get rid of the friction from the rails because it would be riding on an electromagnetic field. And this guy was, I don't want to say he was way ahead of his time, because German engineering in the 30s and 40s was very good. He thought he could do it. He was working on it, and I think the Nazis thought he could do it too because the research continued right through the war. And, of course, since the Americans were scouring Germany, for German technology, engineers, scientists, and since this guy had official patents, since he had a laboratory and was working on this during the war, and since it was written up in openly in the German popular press in the late 1930s, I'm more than certain that the Project Paperclip guys would have gone looking for this. They certainly were aware of it. It was out there. Um, so did they bring Hermann Kemper to the United States? I can't tell you they did because I don't have any documentation of that yet. However, he died in 1971. He did not disappear after World War II. He was in public circulation. He had a life and a career after the war. It would be my guess that he was either, if he was not brought to the United States under paperclip, it would be my guess that he would have been extensively debriefed by the um, military occupying um, authorities. Uh, American understood. Now, it's interesting to me that exactly the same type of system that Hermann Kemper was working on before and during World War II pops up in the United States 30 or 40 years later in rumor fashion, just out there, so to speak, and, and people talking about it as if it exists, which leads me to wonder if the system that the Nazis intended to build was not, in fact, 
built here instead after World War II using Nazi technology, plans, technical drawings, and so forth, just transplanted over here under great secrecy and then constructed under a top-secret cover. I'm really wondering. I can't tell you that happened, but how very interesting to find plans in 1938, plans and patents in 1937 and 1938 that so very closely re resembles. There's almost a 100% correspondence to what is described there and what is rumored to exist in this country, albeit in a very, very secret fashion. reality if you only knew the truth i you know as jack nicholson would say you can't handle the truth um i don't even know where to start uh, all i can tell you is that uh, you know as as weird as this might sound from and i come from inside the media i come from having had uh national radio shows on two different networks with you know hundreds of affiliates with uh uh starting out knowing astronauts and knowing people in the in the uh the military industrial industrial complex having relatives who were colonels in the marine corps and admirals in the navy and um there is so little of your reality <coughs> that is really based on truth that it's just stunning i mean i if I told you that, uh, you know, the very nature of the moon and Mars and most of the planets in the solar system uh, is being kept from you for specific reasons, to make you think that you're completely alone and that these planets can't be colonized. Um, I, I mean, I, I, to ask that kind of question, the problem with anything in this field is that also it's like running through a luminous field of weeds. Yeah, eventually you, you get to a black wall and are faced with virtually nothing but Zen cones and, and riddles as to what's on the other side of that wall. It's not like these people in the government, you know, call somebody like me up on the phone and tell them, well, this is our evil scheme today. Um, there's, and it's also, it's kind of a weird thing too, is because it's almost, the more you know about this field, it becomes almost paralyzing because the more you know, the less you know. Uh, the more you know and the more open-minded you are about this, the more you realize that the, that every answer you find just leads to, a, you know, a, a thousand more questions. Um, you can go back to whether or not it was German technology, and originally in the 1930s, that, you know, with the von Schauberger implosion engines and electromagnetics and whatever else, you know, did the Germans escape to the South Pole or somewhere in South America, and are these, are these beautiful, blonde, Nordic extraterrestrials really just Germans in the skies? Um, when you go to Area 51, and I've seen with my own eyes, uh, flying disc technology, videotape this thing, you know, doing uh, right angle turns and skipping across the sky and appearing and disappearing. Um, once again, extraterrestrial, you know, UFOs, but who's flying them? Is it our military learning how to fly them or are they actual extraterrestrials that are, that are captured there? When you see shuttles that are 15, 1600 feet long, when you interview scientists who claim that we've had uh, vehicles capable of extrasolar travel since the early 1970s. Uh, when you think that um, that there are cults, if you will, scientific cults that have existed for hundreds of years, and that maybe we've never lost a single advance in technology since Da Vinci. 
uh, maybe you know when he invented the airplane and the helicopter and the tank and the submarine or whatever else back in the you know back in the 16th century that uh, there are groups of people maybe who've been developing that technology all along when you think about human development um, the way the Islamic world was developing in the 10th 11th and 12th centuries in the 10th century in Turkey they had gaslit streets and hot and cold running water uh, you know while we Europeans were rolling in the mud looking for grubs and had the Crusades not occurred, the Arabs probably would have put a man on the moon sometime in the 1800s. So when you look at somebody like Jules Verne or H.G. Wells or George Orwell, all of whom were Fabian socialists, and the Fabian socialists being inside this, this core advance in technology, that what they were looking at as science fiction was in fact a reality that was being revealed to them by these secret societies that said, you know, this is what we could do. If you look at H.G. Wells' first men on the moon, and you look at the actual accuracies of First Men on the Moon as opposed to what they did with Apollo, uh, you know, it's, it's really pretty stunning. Um, there is a body of evidence that shows that there are bases on the moon, you know, all over the place, backside of the moon, front side of the moon, that the moon is constantly being mined, uh, that there are objects that travel back and forth across the moon. But once again, is it us or is it them? Uh, there have been records from the London Royal Observatory back through the 1700s of lights on the moon and bridges on the moon and all kinds of crazy things on the moon. Um, in 1955, there was a, a, a bridge over a chasm that was something like 100 miles long that just appeared overnight after a series of red and green lights were seen over, over that particular area. Again, was it us? Did the National Security Agency really land on the moon in 1953? Is it the Germans with their technology? Are they the Fourth Reich? Are they... Hitler's last battalion that will tip the scales when the final battle of East meets West occurs, as Hitler had said. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, again, what's being covered up and, you know, uh, there's ships out there and who's flying them? And is, is it us or them? Aldous Huxley said something very interesting when uh, he said that we found a footprint upon the face of the unknown and found to our dismay that it is, in fact, ours. My, uh, my father was in aerospace and, you know, was a vice president, was a customer communications vice president of TRW, worked for Martin Marietta, worked for TRW, hence NASA. Uh, they built the lunar modules and satellites and rockets and whatever else. I grew up around uh, astronauts, Gus Grissom, Gordon Cooper, Don Isley, uh, Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong. You know, I have two godfathers that have walked on the moon, um, David Scott, Harrison Jack Schmidt. Uh, so, I mean, I knew the guys that were there. I knew the guys that had access and, and you know, were, were the dudes going up in space. Um, meanwhile, I got interested in this because um, they always felt that, especially uh, Gus Grissom, who was probably the person I was closest to, uh, felt that they were spam in a can, that they were, uh, that the astronauts were just a public relations campaign for a secret military program that was spending much more the, the military space program was getting, you know, was a was a gleaming jewel compared to the junk that NASA was getting at the time. And um, they felt that, they always felt that there was some kind of cover-up. Uh, I got into this because um, uh, Jim Levitt, for example, is, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, McDivitt, uh, James McDivitt, came and um, showed UFO photos on the wall of our house. And these guys used to take these little Bell and Howell wind up eight millimeter cameras in their suits and take pictures of these things that used to follow the craft out the windows and they couldn't show them to anybody else so they'd come over and we'd set up a big sheet you know how it was in the 60s and people would watch these uh watch these ufo photos you know we'd sit there and watch them on the wall 
Years later, I interviewed uh, Gordon Cooper, and uh, I was the first one to get him to admit that, you know, that he'd seen extraterrestrial craft in space, that he saw UFOs at Area 51. Uh, Gordon was very active in it because he tried to get the United Nations to come up with extraterrestrial contact protocols, and, you know, Gordon and I were actually very close uh, right up to his death last year. And um, so then I got, with that background in aerospace and knowing all these guys that had been there and had all these amazing experiences, in uh, 1990, I, I was a co-director and co-producer on a, uh, a documentary series called UFO Contactees, and we traveled all around the world and collected about 600 hours of footage with UFO contactees, abductees, scientists, researchers. Somebody had a dog barked at a UFO. We went out and talked to him. Joe Randazzo was our on-camera guy and executive producer. Richard Kashansky was our cameraman. And we spent about three, four months maybe in 1990, uh, like I said, collecting about 600 hours of interviews. We went to, uh, uh, we went to Spain. We went to uh, where we interviewed Fortunatos and Freda. We went to uh, Italy, uh, to uh, uh, Switzerland, where we interviewed Billy Meyer for the first time in like 10 years. We went to France. We went to Canada. Uh, we went to um, Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia. We went went up and down the east coast of the United States, just doing nothing but kind of chasing this phenomenon. So at that time in 1990, it made me one of the foremost experts in the world on this topic because nobody had just gone out and spoken to everybody and taken the time to actually get their stories get their stories on film, which then led to uh, uh, strange enough, our interviewing a scientist by the name of Bob Lazar here in Nevada who said, you don't have to believe anything I say go out to Highway 375 by this black mailbox out there and they test UFOs on Wednesday nights and you'll see them so myself and a friend of mine uh, went out a year later in February of uh, 91 and I dragged a another buddy of mine who was a, a lady that wrote for the uh, LA Times and um, we had a we had a disc almost hit our car and you know bounced around in the desert and chased after it and a big group of people saw it and and it wound up on the front page of the LA Times and then I found a hilltop that looked down on the base and videotaped Area 51 for the first time uh, John Lear had taken some photos of it back in the late 70s but I'd actually videotaped the modern base kinda kept it to myself for a while and then I came out with it in December of 91, and then that, uh, you know, started all kinds of people going out there, you know, who I'm sure have claimed they discovered it or they found it or everybody wanted to lay some claim to fame to, you know, the Whitesides Mountain spot. Uh, really jagged off the military, the fact that I found a, a chink in their armor and found a hilltop that looked right down their throat, and I was sitting up there with a video camera with a bunch of friends of mine, you know, videotaping the most top-secret above-ground military installation that they maintain. Uh, on a pretty regular basis and saw some amazing things. Saw discs uh, on a pretty regular basis there, you know, along with all the people that we would take out there. Uh, we started kind of putting together tours of people who would just all contribute money and we'd all rent a van and, you know, pay for food and, you know, all pitch in about 100 bucks a piece and go out there and uh, climb up the hill and take a look at the base. And uh, uh, of the things that we saw out there that were not just the discs, we saw at one time a a huge black triangular object that moved that that had parked itself there all night, and then early in the uh, in the in the morning of the of the next day in the dawn hours, this big triangular object just moved across the sky, as if it had been sitting there all you know all evening. Uh, we saw a shuttle there once that came in sometime in late uh, 1992. If you remember, in the early 1990s, there was a um, there was this weird phenomenon that was occurring over Southern California that uh, that geologists were calling skyquakes. And they were saying that it was multiple objects that were traveling in from space, 
and we're zeroing in on Catalina Island and the lights of Southern California and landing at Area 51. And this was all over the newscast at that time. And we actually saw what they <coughs> two objects. It was one gigantic object that had a big, flat, blunt shovel nose on it. Uh, looked like a um, looked like two doorstops, one on top of the other. A huge, what we call a flying wedge. Uh, the back end looked kind of like a scooped-up Corvette. But this thing was huge. It was uh, with this big, blunt nose on it. Uh, there was a light on the top, a light on the top, uh, uh, the, the nose, a light on the top, a light on the belly, and there was all kinds of chase planes and choppers around it. But we later guesstimated that this thing was probably 15, 1600 feet long, and it came in from one end of the valley, swooped around, and then landed at 51. So a couple of years later, we saw the same thing on the Discovery Channel on a on an animation that said that this was the X33. And that this was something that was uh, that was a, a, a 1,500-foot shuttle, and was going to be uh, going to be used sometime in the year 2025. And so I'm sure we saw a prototype model of it out there, outside of the little discs that we used to see and photograph all the time. So uh, it was pretty crazy. The the military uh, moved a lot of its stuff. Uh, uh, this was when I, you know, I took Geraldo Rivera out there and I worked on a show called Now it Can Be Told. Um, we were on the Montel Williams show, and Montel said he would go out there. Uh, by that time, Montel kept putting me off, putting me off, putting me off. So by that time, they'd moved everything, and we'd been sleeping out in the dirt for about six months or so, and we hadn't seen anything. So um, when he finally got around to going, I, I didn't take him because I just said, look, it's, you know, I told you they were going to move it all. It's all gone. Uh, the rumor is that they eventually moved most of the, uh, the, the saucers that they had at the S-4 facility to uh, someplace called Area 6413 in Utah. And uh, the, uh, the legend is, or the rumor is, is that now under Kings Peak, Utah, in the Uinta National Forest is now where the center of the U.S. Space Command is. And there's a gigantic underground base, and the mountain opens up, and they've got all kinds of stuff coming and going. But like I said, that's just the, uh, that's just the mythology and the rumor. Um, and since then, I've worked on, uh, you know, I've tried to do stories on the type of phenomenon, everything from kind of metaphysics and UFOs and the, and the bizarre and the unusual I worked as a, a writer and a producer on hard copy for uh, about a year and a half or so, which was the second biggest show in syndication. Uh, I was one of the original creator producers on a show for uh, uh, UPN. I was actually asked by the, the owner of the network to come in and, and set up a show called Strange Universe. And I, I worked on the pilots of Strange Universe, and the show ran for about two and a half years or so. Um, worked as a consultant on Unsolved Mysteries, was, uh, was in on the ground floor of the, uh, the original Alien Autopsy footage, which uh, a buddy of mine, Bob Keviet, was the executive producer on. Uh, was also in on another one, which I, I actually thought was more legitimate. I, I didn't think the uh, alien autopsy footage looked right to me, which is one of the reasons why I kind of bowed out of it. And um, I was involved in another piece of footage, which was called the, the Alien Interview, which uh, a lot of people dismissed, but I thought actually had much more realism to it, that it was two minutes and 55 seconds of an actual living alien being. Uh, that was photographed at Area 51 that was brought out by a guy named Victor who didn't want his name or face used. And uh, we did, I thought, some revolutionary radio interviews with the, with the, with the guy between myself and Art Bell and Victor on the, uh, on the TV. And, you know, this uh, was a big thing in Japan. It was a big thing in Europe. It sold as a, as a, as a video. Um, and I thought uh, Victor gave us uh, some real insights into what contact with an uh, actual extraterrestrial being was like. Um, we asked him, you know, did we communicate with this being? And he said, well, when you pat your dog on the head and say, good boy, are you communicating with your dog? He said that was kind of what it was like dealing with this, uh, with this being. So, um, um, and then I broke the, you know, a number of stories on, uh, gosh, 
Uh, I was the first one to do national stories on the Chupacabra in Puerto Rico for Strange Universe. Went down there and ran through the jungles for about two weeks or so and got some, I, I think, some pretty amazing footage of uh, the carnage this creature was leaving behind. We showed up at a, uh, a farmer's house literally about an hour and a half after three of these things had torn through his farm and, like, killed every animal on his farm. And the, the rabbits had these, these bizarre... Uh, drill holes in their skulls. And apparently these, the chupacabras have these uh, very sharp tongues that they drill literally holes through skull and bone with and then suck the blood out of these, uh, out of these animals. And uh, so it was New Year's Day of 1996. Broke the first stories on that. When I was working for hard copy, I broke the first national stories on the Phoenix Lights. When the Phoenix Lights returned, actually, they, the Phoenix Lights were there on uh, March 13th of 1997, and then they came back January 18th of 1998, and after that, we did the hard copy piece on it because nobody in the national media had covered the fact that a 22-mile-across UFO had parked itself over a major American city, uh, including the media, which is where the whole ABC uh, Peter Jennings laugh-a-thon comes in, that uh, uh, seeing is believing, which should have been, you know, seeing is believing the recreation, because with all the hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of UFO footage, uh, why they didn't show any of it and still started with stuff like, you know, Roswell. You're like, you know, hey, dog, that ain't new, you know, and eh, it's just a lot of outrageous things in that whole that whole deal. For example, uh, uh, Roswell is an American myth without a shred of evidence, which I thought was nonsense, completely ignoring Philip Corso and his best-selling book, The Day After Roswell, totally ignoring the, the dying testimony of Jesse Marcel, ignoring the, you know, the testimony of his son, ignoring the testimony of Mac Brazel, who's the guy who originally saw it, ignoring, you know, on and on and on. And then they just told a whole series of lies about the Phoenix Lights. Uh, this is ABC News, after all, and if they're claiming that it's just flares, then why did they not have any military presence? Why did they not speak to the, uh, the National Guard that claimed that they were having the, the maneuvers that night that supposedly dropped the flares? And they couldn't because they couldn't get the National Guard guys on, on TV because the National Guard would be lying because they weren't flares. We had the, the lights analyzed, uh, very simple Spectral analysis had been done in videotape. There were not flares of any kind. There were very unusual light source. Um, and the, uh, uh, these lights were actually videotaped from about 17 different angles uh, all around the valley, even more so when the Phoenix lights came back in January of, uh, in January of 98. And, um, you know, with no real mention that nobody in the national media, with the exception of hard copy, uh, covered it. And I think Dan Rather mentioned it. Dan Rather mentioned it for about 15 seconds and said there were some lights, but it turned out to be flares. When we went to investigate the case, by the way, and I called the National Guard and tried to get their official story on film about the, about the flares, <coughs> they said that the flares were about, that it was a war game and it was taking place about 8 o'clock. And I said, well, or, I'm sorry, it's taking place about 10.30 or so is what they were saying. And um, I said, well, we've got 17 pieces of video from all these different locations that show that if you were dropping flares right in the approach corridor for the Sky Harbor International Airport, then somebody's going to jail. And uh, they wouldn't talk to us. They hung up the phone on us. We went over there. We pounded on the door. They wouldn't let us in. Um, you know, we were a national news crew. We couldn't get a single person to actually admit to this bogus flare story from the, uh, from the National Guard because they were not flares. We did interview uh, one guy, a former Vietnam veteran and, and war hero, who claimed that he actually videotaped this gigantic craft from the roof of his house and had uh, called the city councilwoman and said, would you like this videotape? And she said, yes, wrap it up a certain way and put a certain number on it. He was about ready to walk out this door, and he claimed these, uh, these two weird little Asian guys with kind of yellow skin and the black sunglasses and the black suits and the mohair cuts 
showed up at his door, and uh, he said they moved like robots, and uh, they took the tape. They said, you know, we're here to get the tape, and have you shown this to anybody, and you made any copies? And when he said no, he took the tape, turned around, and walked out. We then got the testimony of uh, a Monsignor of the, uh, the Phoenix Parish, who'd been a, a Catholic priest there for 25 years, who was coming to visit uh, this gentleman, who said that he watched them walk out into the parking lot, get into a jet black 1955 Buick Roadmaster with blacked out windows. And he said he didn't hear the car start, and the wheels didn't move, and the thing just glided out of the parking lot. And this is a Catholic priest that we had on tape talking about this this kind of very cool Men in Black story. That, uh, And you don't get... Uh, a lot of people think, you know, there's Men in Black stories all over ufology. There really aren't. The Men in Black stories are all from the early 1950s or so, you know, regardless of what the movies say. But, you know, for the first time we had a really cool... Uh, actual eyewitness, two people actually witnessing the car and the two men, and and uh, confiscating some really serious evidence of uh, of uh, you know what these things were. I was in contact with a, a, another gentleman who claimed he was in contact with the Pleiadians, uh, a guy who called himself Adrienne, and uh, uh, also known as the, the rather famous Miami contacts that were originally covered by uh, Randy Winters, and I became involved in it when uh, um, we kept trying to make a special out of this. Uh, some kind of TV show out of this gentleman, and he just, he would never give us the rights. He would never give us the proper paperwork to do anything with it. But he had photos, and his girlfriend had ridden on the ships, and he had landed craft, and pictures of his girlfriend getting on the craft, and, you know, video everywhere, all over Miami. And uh, he eventually moved to Germany and just kind of disappeared into Europe. So, uh, and it was, you know, the 90s were really a heyday for, for ufology. When you think about all the shows, you, you know, you had, you had, you had sightings and, and uh, sightings eventually then led to the X-Files, and, the X and then you had Unsolved Mysteries and Hard Copy and Strange Universe and Roswell, the series, and, you know, special after special after special, uh, a UPN special called Danger in Our Skies. There was UFOs everywhere. And then um, right about 97, 98, I watched it happen from the inside, that you had about 100 media outlets that were all doing, you know, very cool metaphysical new age UFO kind of shows, and one by one by one, uh, these big media conglomerates just basically systematically bought them up and crushed everything that would have to do with the UFO phenomenon, um, including, I might add, you know, Clear Channel buying up 49% of the radio market and buying up Coast to Coast and, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Dr. Laura and, you know, whatever else. And there's, you know, I'm not sure if there's any censorship there, but uh, what is considered the, the, the premier flagship UFO type of program with Art Bell and George Norrie is, is still owned by a company that, isn't really comfortable with the subject. So many people being concerned with terrorism and Arabs and whatever else, and you know what we view as supposedly real life concerns. Uh, nobody seems too concerned about extraterrestrials or what they have to say or what they're doing around the planet because you know we're we're too terrified half the time. And so here it is, 2005, and uh, the fact that Peter Jennings can get on ABC and and cover Roswell from 60 years ago and and um, uh, the Phoenix Lights. And a couple of other stories from a few other people with, you know, reenactments, not even real footage. Um, I don't know, just shows the uh, the sad state of affairs as far as this entire, uh, you know, it's gone back to once again kind of a cult status. It's got, it's it's lost a the popular shine that it had throughout the 1990s, and it's gone back to the you know the tried and true believers at the UFO World Congress and local meetings of MUFON and and uh, uh, and what have you. I just thought the uh, the real travesty of uh, the, the Peter Jennings special was that, um, you know, you, you literally have more people in this country who believe in UFOs and extraterrestrial life than believe they're going to get Social Security by the time they turn 65. 
So with close to 67% of the people believing in UFOs and extraterrestrials, uh, those who don't and those who debunk the phenomenon, uh, they are the ones that are in the crazed, moronic, uh, low IQ minority, uh, no longer the people that... Uh, um, the people in this country who are the ones who, who have seen the craft or believe in the craft or understand that we're, we may not be alone in the universe. Of course, the problem is, and, and Peter Jennings did say this, that uh, uh, he believes in UFOs. He just doesn't know who's driving them. And uh, he has said quite a few times that uh, he felt that the U.S. government's behavior towards people who have seen UFOs has been atrocious. Of course, Peter Jennings can say that because it's our government and he's Canadian. So... Um, you know, when he gets on the TV and says, you know, your government is behaving very badly, the fact that we have, you know, the premier American newsman is from, where, Montreal or something, so. Um, and some other comments, like, for example, uh, if I can throw this in, um, uh, the Seattle Chat Club is one of the most active uh, UFO chapters in the country, run by a good friend of mine, Charlotte Lefevre, and um, uh, they had a huge rally for Peter Jennings with uh, uh, Peter Davenport up in up in Seattle, and uh, hundreds of people showed up at a you know at a big sort of municipal hall. There was a stage, and Peter Jennings came across and shook Davenport's hand uh, after P Peter Davenport gave his presentation. And um, rather unfairly, uh, Peter Jennings made it look as though Peter Davenport was just a lone guy in his house with a tape recorder, and that he's the only guy who covers UFOs full time. I've always been prone to hair thinning. I'm genetically predisposed. I just gave birth. I was under a lot of stress. I started taking Nutrafol. We test our formulations with the highest rigor of clinical trials, and we're the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement. I noticed it becoming stronger and thicker. Nutrafol has taken me back to the hair I was meant to have. I am back to me. Start your hair growth journey at Nutrafol.com. How'd you get that mixed with your combo? These fries and rings. At BK, you can build your combo. Frozen Coke, too? Yep, sides and drinks, too. BK, having your way. From creator Dan Harmon comes TV's number one new comedy. How did I live without this? Critics call it funny and naughty and delightfully twisted. What is it with all the yelling? You woke me up and I was underneath a mountain of bodies. Join civilization's first family in a comedy that doesn't quit. We can't quit now. We have to evolve society to the point where women find hot men boring. Crapopolis, all new Sundays on Fox and watch anytime on Hulu. Did I turn up any definitive proof of alien races walking among us? It, I guess it defines on, it, it depends on, on what your definition of definitive is. If, for example, uh, you take uh, the eyewitness accounts of respected scientists in their field who would say yes, uh, people like uh, Dr. Anthony Ribera, who was the, um, uh, the partner of Jacques Cousteau, who began the Calypso Foundation, who partnered with Cousteau for 25 years, written over 60 books on uh, not only UFOs, but uh, oceanographic tectonics. And you have Dr. Ribera claim that he was part of a group of scientists that were directly being contacted by a race of beings called the UMO, who came from the Wolf 423 star system in the constellation of Virgo. Um, if you uh, claim definitive proof as being, uh, for example, the, uh, uh, the alien interview tape that we got, who was a guy who claimed he worked at Area 51, 
who brought this two minutes and 55 seconds of footage out that we had analyzed by doctors and Hollywood special effects people. The special effects people said, oh, it was fake, but then again we said, okay, if it's fake, how much would it cost to fake it, and why don't you do it? None of them could, and none of them would, by the way. Uh, we showed it to doctors, and there was a heart monitor that was actually in the background as this, and this poor little being was kind of having what appeared to be an attack of some kind. And there was a doctor who said, this is real, because there's no way that you would be able to fake that heart monitor and work a puppet. If it was a puppet, you would have to know what that heart monitor did. The heart monitor already has an unusual signature, because the, the being itself had an unusual sort of heart-lung um, uh, arrangement, which instead of like a lub-dub, it was like boom, boom, it was sort of a weird... Uh, uh, beat to it, but when the when the being started having an attack, this thing started doing all kinds of crazy things, and this emergency room technician said, that's impossible to do. If you were working that puppy, you'd have to know every breath would have to go on that monitor. Um, you know, I was, uh, when I was in uh, Puerto Rico with the Chupacabra, uh, you know, we saw footprints, we had hundreds of people who had eyewitness accounts, but once again, is it just some weird creature that hibernates and comes up every hundred years, like you know, the Jersey Devil or the, um, you know, the Sasquatch or uh, um, the Skunk Ape or, you know, pick one. Uh, the Phoenix Lights is something else. You have a 22-mile-across craft. Everybody says it's not from this earth. Well, that's a little arrogant because if you know what the military has, um, it could have been, for all we know, a gigantic dirigible of some kind. They're, they're using gigantic uh, zeppelins now in sort of diamond shapes to now transport troops and things uh, <clears throat> from one place to another. Um, it's also that, uh, again, the, the, the key to this whole thing is, is that once you understand what gravity is, that's the next step in, in human evolution. The next step in human evolution, take all the other science and throw it out the window. When you know what gravity, not what it does, the Newtonian theory of gravity, or even the Einsteinian theory of gravity, that, that, that gravity does certain things at speed or you drop something and it, and it falls. When you, it's not what gravity does, but what gravity is. Once you understand what gravity is and you can create gravity like a wave, exactly like we can create microwaves or gamma rays or any other type of wave, then that's pretty much it. With gra by the understanding of gravity, you suddenly then break the bounds of Earth. You break the bounds of time and space as we know it. Because now you can create gravity exactly like you could create uh, you know, microwaves to heat your food, as an example. And apparently, at somewhere like Area 51, they had broken that. It was a rather exotic technology that was powered, supposedly, by this element that did not come from this planet, Element 115, but... Um, supposedly powered these ships and um i mean i saw them work uh, whether or not it was you know aliens or human beings inside them i don't know but i mean i saw them i got them on film disappearing and reappearing and doing 90 degree turns and um you know i had one almost hit my car and land like a top and glow with a uh, kind of a brilliant aura around the outside of it and, you know me and my pal got our faces burned chasing after this thing so um but once again who knows it's not like they get out and say hey how you doing and, you know, that's the one other thing, too, that I noticed that, that um, in any of the ufology, you will notice that the majority of, these, of, of these, these UFO investigators are more than willing to talk to somebody when they see a UFO. And somebody can say, well, it was this big and it was that bright and it did this color and it did these things and it bounced up and down and, ooh, it was weird. The minute that UFO lands and people get out and start talking to humans and giving them any kind of message then that's when all the UFO debunkers, the, you know, they get out the hammers and the nails and start screaming to Pontius Pilate that somebody needs to be crucified. 
whenever you see extraterrestrial contactees like Billy Meyer or Adrienne or Fred Bell or uh, Alice Haggerty or some of the you know uh, some of the people that I've become friends with, um, the minute the UFOs actually have something to say, uh, you know that's when ufology seems to really shut down. And um, the really amazing thing was that if Peter Jennings did a follow-up to his seeing is believing and actually interviewed people that had actually, and we're not just talking about getting strapped to tables and, you know, getting anally probed and having things jamming in their eye or, you know, up their butts or, you know, whatever else. We're talking about actual conversation like you and I are having where uh, in so many cases uh, they've actually warned us, given us, they've, they've warned us about ecological disaster. They've warned us about geological disaster. They've warned us uh, about disease, about plague, about things about the future. And in some cases, they've given us science, they've given us technology, um, they've been in contact with scientists around the world, and um, who knows, for all we know, the Roswell saucer fell out of the sky and gave us lasers and night vision and transistors and computers and, you know, most of the modern world we have today represented this quantum leap from literally a, a, a Dewey sex machina that, uh, you know, that, that drops from the sky that uh, puts us where we're at today. So... As far as the definitive proof, again, if seeing is believing and if videotape is the next best thing, uh, that's the real revolution. The real revolution was is that 30 years ago, you had to rely on your Uncle Bob at a picnic, you know, who may be drunk on something, you know, watching a UFO fly around. Uh, the 90s and the advent of the 90s in like 1991 or so was when you could have dozens of people in Mexico filming UFOs from, you know, dozens of different angles that when you can have dozens of people in Phoenix filming UFOs from dozens of different angles, you know, you know something's there. and You have a piece of physical evidence that can be analyzed in a computer as far as height, width, breadth, where it is, to parallax photography to figure out, you know, what's going on. And, um, but once again, the people that actually seem to have contact that are trying to give us some kind of information, trying to give us some kind of warning, either about the future or the future of mankind or give us some type of spiritual teaching, are... Um, Tarred and feathered, and usually run out of town on a rail, and that's uh, that's the really sad part because they're looked at the looked at as the crazy ones. Whereas in the past they were the they were the prophets of the Old Testament. They were the you know Isaiah's and the Ezekiel's and the, and the Daniel's and Elijah's and Elisha's. And I don't think a single thing has changed in five thousand years. I think that uh, people are still having prophetic contact with these beings. That um, uh, they're interacting with us on a daily basis. And uh, some are positive and, and some are negative.
it's not like they pick up the phone and say, hey, this is what's going on. And even when you talk to guys that claim they know, um, you always have to take it with a grain of salt and a great deal of suspicion and, and uh, kind of put your tongue in your cheek and give it a wink a bit. Um, one of the grandfathers of the, of the entire UFO movement, I think one of the, well, one of the pioneers of it really was George Adamski. And when George Adamski wrote his books in the early 1950s, uh, Flying Saucers Are Real and Inside the Spaceships, uh, Adamski had a series of experiences, and I, I actually I got to interview uh, people that knew Adamski personally, people that took some of Adamski's uh, photo, photos, someone that took some of his film. Um, we interviewed uh, Madeline Rutherford in uh, Silver Springs, Maryland, who was uh, standing right next to Adamski when the famous... Uh, footage of the, you know, the UFO that was like right in her yard, and um, told us the whole experience about these these two gentlemen in trench coats and hats. That she said one was from Venus and one was from Mars, and she offered them milk and cookies, and they said, "Are you ready?" And he said, "Yes." And they went out in the yard, and they went down to a car, and they they got on a microphone in the car, and a football-shaped size object came in and began to scan the whole area, and um, the scout ship came down, and Madeline was there. She had a she had a uh, her leg was in a hip cast at that time, and she said she was shaking so violently that Adamski finally took the camera and um, and actually shot the film on his own. But um, Adamski had some amazing experiences. Every single one of these experiences was, in fact, verified by our own Gemini, Mercury, and Apollo astronauts. Adamski said, for example, uh, uh, just a couple of interesting things. And once again, remember this is 1951, between 51 and 53. Adamski talked about that when you left orbit, around Earth that there were these weird fireflies that, that uh, coruscated around the outside of the, uh, the ship that he could see through the window that he thought might be alive, this weird kind of sparkling, uh, uh, kind of sparkling light effect. And this was one of the things that was described by John Glenn in his first orbits around the moon, uh, these bizarre little bugs that he said that looked like, that looked like lightning bugs you know, all around the outside of the ship. Uh, Adamski described accurately the backside of the moon for example, which had not been seen to that time. Uh, described the Tesseroslavsky crater on the back of the moon, described a huge hexagonal um, dent in the backside of the moon, uh, described a lake on the backside of the moon, which was all photographed by the Russians. Um, talked about, you know, went on from there, and of course this is where his, uh, where his information differs from what we're being told, mind you, but went on from there to say that the moon, especially on the backside and in certain areas, had atmosphere, uh, that you could actually, with about 24 hours of decompression, get out and walk around on the lunar surface. Um, in fact, there are so many people who are claiming that with books like Dark Moon and all these, you know, claiming that the whole moon landing was a big hoax. Um, I mean, I know the guys that went there. I know that it wasn't a hoax. However, I also think that NASA was not being straight up about the actual nature of the moon, about its gravity, about its makeup, about its surface, uh, in fact, about its atmosphere, there were so many anomalies that were sent by, back by Apollo, including UFOs and all kinds of freaky things flying around, that I don't think it could, it could have been a hoax. Had it been a hoax that they tricked up in a studio somewhere, then you wouldn't have had these anomalies. It would have been a completely controlled experience. Uh, Adamski went on to talk about uh, giving the, the proper number of the moons around Jupiter. He talked about how there, be, there was a, an, an actual planet at the core of the gases of Jupiter. He talked about visiting Venus. Uh, and um, to this day, I don't think anybody's actually given us the straight scoop on Venus. He talked about Mars. Uh, every Martian photo that's taken is actually filtered through a lab in San Diego before any of those photos actually hit JPL up in, up in Pasadena. 
the, the famous Mars photos you see today where the planet's all red have been run through a savage red filter in order to cover up the fact that there are massive green belts and clouds and you know water all over the planet. So I don't know if this information is being kept away from the public to make them think that this is it and that Earth is just, we're stranded here and that there's no point in going out into space and there's no point in expanding and, you know, you're done and this is your world and this is your finite universe. Uh, or the elites are simply covering all this up in order to um, possibly keep it for themselves. When I mean, you're talking about the elite or, well, I mean, to put it to put it in more perspective, I mean, to actually use what they call themselves. And, uh, you know, and I went to school with a bunch of these kids. When you go to USC, it's a, you know, it's a pretty bougie school. And uh, when you go to school with, like, you know, Rothschilds and whatever else, you learn a few things. Um, the core inner group, which is probably so secret you don't hear the word much, but they call themselves the Incunabula. And the Incunabula means, it's a Latin term, which means nest of serpents or clutch of serpents' eggs. And they seem to be in the inner core uh, of a board of about 15 people or so that are kind of the... Uh, the CEOs and executive board of the planet Earth, if you will. And from there, the Incutabula has everything from the Advanced Contact Intelligence Organization to, which then trickles down towards NASA. Um, the outer core is the Council on Foreign Relations, which recruits between 2,500 and about 3,500 members or so. The inner core becomes the Trilateral Commission, you know, going up and up and up. Um, as far as depopulation... Critics are calling TV's number one new comedy funny and naughty and delightfully twisted. What is it with all the yelling? You woke me up and I was underneath a mountain of bodies. Rapopolis, all new, Sundays on Fox and watch anytime on Hulu. Population goes, you know, once again, I, I don't know. I, all we can do is theorize. It's not like they call me on the phone. There seem to be, uh, there seem to be two schools of thought on this. The one school of thought is, is that no, they don't want depopulation because, you know, who would be their slaves? Who would serve them, if you will? And uh, the, other, the other school of thought on this is that um, during the Industrial Revolution, we needed people, and we needed people primarily to work the machines. We needed people to work in the factories. Now we've gone beyond people, and now we have machines that build machines that build machines. And because that is, in fact, the case, we've now, we now have a surplus population where they become what Hitler called the useless eaters. And they're people that are just taking up space and taking up natural resources and basically just messing up the world. And that now that these elite have these machines that build the machines, that it's time for them to depopulate the world and for them to do this using a series of plagues and global wars. And, uh, you know, atomic conflicts are not, uh, um, do not seem to be something that uh, that they're interested in using. They're they're interested in using the threat of atomic conflict in order to milk the populace. Uh, the other thing about atomic conflict is too is that there does seem to be a universal consensus amongst US, UFO contactees that if we were to engage in nuclear war, that a nuclear war, especially using hydrogen and or cobalt bombs, would bleed over into other dimensions and actually not only affect this world but apparently Earth's in an infinite number of parallel universes. And when many of these mass UFO contacts began after 1945, there was no coincidence that we started testing atomic weapons. Once again, the atomic weapons have the ability not only to destroy the Earth, but also rip the fabric of time and space as we know it. And almost universally amongst UFO contactees that I've interviewed, they said that the only time that these extraterrestrials would step in would be if uh, mankind was on the verge of using, on the verge of using these weapons. 
and that they would step in and actually stop it, not really for our own good, but for the sake of the rest of the solar system and apparently the rest of the universe. Um, as far as the elites go, what their plan is, uh, you know, I don't know. If you, if you read the Council on Foreign Relations quarterly reports like I do, if you've ever read uh, Carol Quigley, if you've ever read, uh, um, you know, any of these guys who teach at Harvard, um, my best guess, and I'll just give my best guess how these guys think, my best guess is that they have a much better idea through their scientists and their scientific and computer models what the Earth is going through. And um, that Earth was, is going to go through a very rapid global greenhouse. In other words, get very, very warm very, very quickly, and then get very cold very quickly. That basically we're, we're looking at the, uh, not the beginning of an, another hot age, if you will, uh, but another ice age. And that um, when the planet gets very hot, it then uh, begins to cool itself with all kinds of volcanoes. For example, today, I don't know if you know this while you guys have been sitting here, but uh, about uh, four hours ago, Mount St. Helens erupted with plumes about 3,000 uh, 3, feet in the air. Uh, there were 700 earthquakes earlier today underneath Puget Sound, which means that Seattle's getting ready to go. This is a fulfillment of many of my predictions where I've been saying that watch for activity at Mount Rainier approximately May of 2005, May through September, and all that's beginning to activate now, um, beginning my whole tribulation scenario of 2005 to approximately 2007. Um, but they know that when the Earth gets hot, you have these volcanoes. The volcanoes dump silicates in the atmosphere. The silicates then cool the planet when the sunlight actually bounces off the atmosphere, and um, then it leads to a, 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 another ice age. If, if that's, in fact, the case, what these elites think is that the best slaves are a combination of, of Asiatics and Caucasians. And they want to actually mix Caucasians with Asians because they feel that the Caucasians are stronger and have a, have a work ethic, if you will, and that the Asians have more of a hive mind, that they, they, they think more as a team to combine these two together but then move that population down towards the equators where obviously the, the world is going to be much warmer. Of course, the problem is you have people who live at the equators, like in Africa, and so the best way, if you're going to populate something as rich in, in minerals as Africa, is to wipe out the population by disguising things like the AIDS virus as polio vaccines. And so with some 200 million dead in Africa over the last 15 or 20 years from AIDS, uh, with massive civil wars raging across the continents where they're all killing each other anyway, um, with uh, more of these diseases in South America at the same time, you know, their ultimate goal is to take their, quote, slave or working populations and start moving them down towards the equators. Um, in the meantime, you have massive underground cave systems, uh, gigantic governmental structures that have been built for the last 60 years underground. You have to remember that they've had half the federal budget uh, to go towards defense in the supposed Cold War to build gigantic underground facilities. The entire state of Nevada is nothing but a you know one huge running underground facility that connects Area 51 with the Dulce Mesa, with with NORAD, with Strategic Air Command, with an entire baffle of cave systems and structures that run from Carlsbad Caverns in Arizona all the way up through uh, all the way up through Arizona. Um, these same these same cave systems are uh, were mostly built as part of uh, there's there's actually a series of underground tunnels that have very high-speed um, electric trains that run from place to place. Supposedly, you can get from the Dulce Mesa to Washington, D.C. in you know, under about an hour and a half on one of these trains. They're like porcelain-covered trains. 
Again, this was all part of the part of Eisenhower's Audubon project that while they were building roads on the surface, they were building roads underground at the same time. Most of the massive underground um, building that's been taking place, just what I discovered, uh, a friend of mine owns one of the largest mines in North America in Kellogg, Idaho, and I talked to people that make these giant drill bits, these huge wheels that are like 100 feet across. And the guy says, we're working 24-7, and we're shipping all these things down to Australia because they're building a gigantic underground facility uh, in Alice Springs, which is in the center part of Australia, which many believe has been the most geologically stable over the course of millions of years. And Alice Springs is its called the, uh, Alice Springs is called the, uh, the Australian Area 51. And, um, uh, you know, who knows? Do these power elites simply destroy, plan on destroying the world and wiping out most of the world's population while they sit safely in their underground bunkers? Can they use the technology at Area 51 to get to bases on the moon or possibly bases on Mars? You know that have been there for many, many years. Um, certainly, they seem to have some sort of economic agenda that uh, seems to be designed to turn the entire planet into a Orwellian 1984-style nightmare, sort of Eurasia, East Asia, and Oceania, where you have three warring countries and you know three major currencies with the euro and the Federal Reserve note and the yuan, and and um, you know they are months away from collapsing. U.S. currency, collapsing the U.S. stock market, uh, uh, doing a number of nefarious things to actually break the United States of America for introduction into this one world superstate. I would not think that they would put quite so much time into the economics and the politics and the industry and all the plotting and planning that they've done, uh, you know, to simply come up with some kind of doomsday device to simply wipe out the earth as we know it. Uh, there seems to have been an infinite amount of patience and, and planning on the part of the in Kunabula, this, this ruling elite, if you will, um, into controlling the populations of the earth, that, once again, you have these two warring factions. One group that says, well, they're just going to wipe everything out. Well, if they wanted to do that, they could probably just flip the planet over tomorrow if they wanted. And another group that says, well, total totalitarian controls and chips in everybody's heads and, and uh, you know, this, this, this fascist Orwellian nightmare. Well, you got to have slaves to have an Orwellian nightmare. On the one hand, you know, the elite's got to have somebody to boss around. And on the other hand, if they just want to wipe everybody out, well, you know, who's going to mow the lawn and do the laundry? Well, the only reason that I really started doing the prophetic work is because when I'd done my spiritual training um, in India and I lived with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala for about three months or so, or at least at his, uh, at the compound there at Dharamsala, and then... Uh, for about eight months or so in uh, Nepal at a place called Tengbache. It was a, a black hat monastery right across the uh, Tibetan border in Nepal. And I came home and I had the ability to be able to predict these things and very, very clearly visualize certain events. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, the first major event that I, I, I remember predicting Gus Grissom's death when I was a little kid. And I remember having these psychic visions when I was younger. And of course, we came from a very good Catholic family and you know later became like biblical fundamentalists and you know, that was just not the kind of thing that you did. Uh, my grandmother was uh, was Irish, and, you know, she knew that I had the sight, as she used to call it. And I could, quote, see around a few corners, as she used to say, and uh, kind of protected me from, you know, my parents. And um, um, so I was remarkable in that aspect. And then, but it was also something that I, that I developed over a long period of time through study and, and, um, through Western techniques like remote viewing and through Eastern techniques like techniques like the Karma Gay Kegyu 
black hat practices. And um, the first big thing I remember predicting here was the San Francisco earthquake in 1989. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to tell. I, you know, I, I took friends of mine from Northern California. I knew the quake was coming. I said it was going to be between October 15th and October 30th of 89. It was going to be a big quake that was going to majorly impact San Francisco. We took a group of about 20 people or so up to Mount Shasta to do some prayers and see if we could actually deflect the energy of the quake. And just a complete disaster. Everybody got in fights and everybody wanted to go every different way and nobody wanted to listen. And, and uh, I think we managed to successfully drag about four people up the hill to do some kind of meditations because Mount Shasta is a vortex where you could control um, most of the energies of Northern California. And at that time, I, I saw that the vortex of Mount Shasta is just being horrifically dark. Um, I saw what used to be an angelic refuge filled with hobos, if you will. Um, made me sick, made me just deathly ill for weeks afterwards after we did it. Um, this was October 1st of 1989 when we took this group of people up there. And, uh, of course, the quake hit on the, on the 17th. And I was up hiding up in Lake Tahoe at my folks' house up there when the, uh, when the quake actually hit during the World Series. And um, the only thing I, I was told by, in my meditations by my masters, was uh, that we'd at least managed to drive the quake south of San Francisco into Hollister instead of, you know, dead center of San Francisco. And that was, you know, we could be happy with that, I guess. Um, since then, the, the reason I took up the prophetic work is because I saw so many people... Uh, I felt creating fear and creating, um, I mean, at the time in the early 1990s, you had people that were saying that, well, you know, California's going to fall into the ocean any day, and Elizabeth Clare Prophet had moved out in the 1980s claiming that, you know, Malibu was going to be destroyed, and Shirley MacLaine left, and, um, you know, you had so many people that misinterpreting Nostradamus, um, and I was the only one that was saying, you know, everything's going to be fine, it's going to be okay, that these are all, that these are all natural rumblings of the earth, my prediction about the Northridge earthquake, which was made eight months in advance, I started printing a newsletter because I needed to get down my predictions in print. And at that time, I was a guest on the Art Bell Show. And initially, I was talking about Area 51, and Art let me talk about, you know, because I was I was a, an intuitive that was investigating UFOs, not some, you know, UFO guy that became like some, you know, spiritual guru. I had always been somebody on a spiritual path that was simply drawn towards the UFO phenomenon because I'd witnessed it myself and, you know, I didn't have an abduction. I'm not a contactee or an abductee or any kind of E. I just, you know, had some cool things happen to me uh, that I became really interested in and started becoming interested in the government cover-up of UFOs in general and, you know, how they had these craft at this, uh, you know, at this base. So in the course of that, I, I've, you know, I've been doing this work now for 14 years. I started, I started in March of 93, 2003, yeah, uh, 10, 4, 5, so 12 years or so when I've been doing this work. And with that, I've been the number one guest on probably the number one late-night radio show in the world, which was Coast to Coast with Art Bell and later with George Norrie and hosting my own radio show. Um, I mean, I can't even get into this, gosh, just the, the massive litany of predictions that I've gotten correct. I mean, it's one of the things that has contributed to my... I guess fame, or if you want to call it that, success on programs like this, is that you know I'm I'm not a complete jackass. I don't get up there and uh, you know I'm invited back to these programs because what I say happens, and when I have a vision and when I make a prediction, I not only have the vision and the prediction, but I try to back it up and I try to do as much research, saying okay, you know which way is this going to come and how is this going to you know how is this going to scope in a certain way. And actually, I probably got the most fame for my financial predictions because knowing how cycles work. 
and knowing how the Bible works and knowing how things run in systems of seven and along the Hebrew calendar, I've managed to successfully predict the stock market um, dead on over the past 10 years or so, more successfully than anybody, I think, ever. Um, <clears throat> and as far as my uh, predictions go, gosh, from the Northridge quake to the Landers quake to the San Francisco quake to, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I, to all the, every, every election I've been dead on, from the election of uh, in 1990, I predicted that Bush would lose to a Democratic dark horse, to uh, the prediction of Clinton, to the re-entrance of Ross Perot in the presidential race, to Clinton's re-election, to in 97 saying Bush was going to be president. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on. I, I don't, we, we don't have enough time here for me to go over, you know, the last 10 years, what I've been right about. 2005 was the, uh, has always been the linchpin, and I've always said since I started doing this, I, I knew this since I was a boy, and my family visited Egypt, and I went to school there, and I had some experiences in the Great Pyramid when I was like 16 years old. Um, that the 19, that 19, uh, that 2005 was going to be was going to be the beginning, and that by the fall of 2005, that we would have one year of warning from September from September of 2005. Let's call it October 1st of 2005 to approximately October uh, of 2004. I'm sorry. <clears throat> to approximately October 1st of 2005, and uh, and I've said that over and over and over again, and I, and I think I think we're there. I mean, um, within a couple of months of that prediction, we've had the seventh worst natural disaster in global history, with the Sumatran tsunami with close to 200,000 dead and more dead from disease. Uh, as of today, as of us, us taping this, which is uh, the 7th of March of 2005. Uh, earlier this morning, you had hundreds of earthquakes in Puget Sound underneath Seattle, and you had a major eruption of uh, Mount St. Helens, 3,000 feet in the air. The plumes are going. Uh, I've been saying that Mount Rainier was going to start to activate with a possible eruption between May and, and September of, of this year, that you would see the beginning of that activation this year, and, of course, Mount St. Helens became active within that period of time. Last year, I became probably the most famous because, you know, back in February of 2004, I predicted that John Kerry was going to be the presidential candidate, that not only would Bush win, but that he would win by a landslide, he would win by a mandate, um, when everybody believed that Kerry was going to be, you know, the Zogby polls, and every psychic, and every astrologer, and, you know, every New Age purple moo-moo-wearing woo-woo out there was saying, oh, it's going to be John Kerry, and it's going to be wonderful, and I said, that ain't the way it's going to be, it's going to be Bush, sorry, you know, he's, he's the man that's going to bring all this about, and, um, you know, it's 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 hard because you you stand up and you, you take so much you take so much grief from so many people the the laugh factor of people beating you down and then when you're right what do you do you know you go well I guess I was right and people go you know yeah what does he know you know who's he when he when he's at home um, but we're looking at a five year or, I'm sorry a seven year tribulation period here from 2005 to 2012 leading up to the end of the Mayan calendar and um, anybody that studies prophecy anybody that understands the Mayans and the Great Pyramid of Chichen Itza and the Great Pyramid of Giza and the, the prophecies of Nostradamus and the prophecies of the Bible or whatever else knows that this is it, that these are, the, these are seven years that will change the face of the world as we know it, that will change us, that will change us spiritually, it will change the planet geologically, that will change everything politically, that will change everything economically. Um, we're looking at a huge flux in the stock market coming up in May. We're looking at one last big run of the market before a, 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 a humongous financial collapse in the United States. We're looking at a two-tiered money system and money structure with a foreign and domestic currency with a lot of hyperinflation in the U.S. to pay 
you know, the bills for all these massive wars. We're looking at the collapse of America as an empire. And every empire thinks it's different, and every empire winds up exactly the same, and that's exactly what America's doing. We're grabbing everything we can get our hands on before, uh, you know, trying to gobble up as much gold and treasure as we can to feed the interest monster, uh, you know, before the banks take over everything. Yeah, collapse of the real estate markets, collapse of the housing markets, collapse of the uh, financial markets. Um, every everything that I've ever run as far as uh, as far as patterns as far as waves as far as social structures they all just hit a wall in 2005 it, it ends, we, have a whole, we have a whole economic cycle that goes from um, from October of 1987 which was the last stock, big stock market crash all the way up through 2005 but everything as I know it hits a wall in late 2005 early spring of 2006 and whether or not that's triggered by nobody wanted to dealing in the US Nobody wanted to deal in the U.S. dollar, just like Korea did about two weeks ago. They don't want to buy our T-bills anymore. They don't want to buy. They don't want to deal in dollars uh, because the dollar is getting killed against the euro because the euro is backed by gold and the Federal Reserve notes backed by nothing. Um, our money is backed by the faith, energy, and spirit of the people of the United States. That's it. it means that just the fact that you and I get up in the morning is what the economy is based on. foundation for all of the rest of these biblical prophecies to occur, uh, including the rise of, a, of an Iranian antichrist and a conglomeration of seven Arab nation states along with three Asian states. Um, I've been saying from the beginning that this entire war in the Middle East, the Red Chinese are behind, and they are. They've been funding it. They've been financing it. They've been giving weapons to it. So it will not be surprising when Islam actually aligns with China and these three Asian kings. Um, that the, uh, the big earthquake in uh, Los Angeles. Something happens that, uh, you know, we'll see if New York gets the Olympics or not. My prediction had been that New York would get the Olympics. Something dastardly would happen, something terrible would happen to New York City, and that uh, at the very last minute they're going to talk about moving the Olympics to Los Angeles, and before they could actually do that. Um, every time I've viewed Los Angeles, the big quake in Los Angeles, if this is going on tape now, um, I always see a... Uh, just to the west of the main city of L.A., and I keep thinking it's for the Olympics, but they build this huge tower like the Space Needle that actually has an angel on top of the tower that has a, a, a glowing sword on top of the tower, very much like uh, the symbol for um, Columbia Pictures, where instead of the torch, she's holding a glowing sword. It's a huge structure, though, and I always see something added to the, to the, to the skyline. Every time I view the quake, uh, and this wave coming into uh, Los Angeles. So L.A. will become known as the Olympic City again, and everybody just kind of tricks everything up because something happens in New York. Um, the greatest thing I'm worried about has to do with um, uh, the, 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 the breaking of the New Madrid Fault sometime in 2011 and 2012. Um, you know, these, this is kind of the timeline for all these... Uh, all these natural catastrophes. I've, I've always seen a you know a, a, a massive wave taking out big chunks of the of the East Coast. Um, the possible uh, eruption of uh, a volcano on the island of Las Palmas, which is uh, in the Canary Islands. Which if that if that volcano goes, that's the sort of Damocles that's hanging over the head of the entire East Coast. If Las Palmas goes in the Canary Islands and that whole island splits off and dives into the sea, we're talking about 60 foot tidal waves that would just wash across. Cuba, Jamaica, Florida. Um, I've always seen water uh, problems with New York. I don't see New York destroyed. 
I see it surviving a near miss of some kind of atomic attack um, by a boat, I think. Something actually comes into the harbor and they explode this thing outside in the water. And, um, and then this big wave that, you know, comes and starts taking out big chunks of the coast. So outside of that, um, I keep having dreams about the Pope and the Pope dying on the 13th of May, which is uh, significant because that's a significant date for the appearance of the Virgin Mary. Uh, I noticed that when Sister Lucia, who was the last of the children of Fatima, died, who the Pope had constantly said was his rock and his the, the beacon of his faith, when she died a few days later, the Pope checked, checked himself into the hospital. And um, therefore, I do not see, I don't see the Pope living up the year, but once again, I, I keep seeing the date May 13th. That will pave the way for two more Popes. Um, the Pope of the Glorious Olive Branch, as he'll be called, uh, you know, who rule for quite a few years and bring peace to a number of different regions. And then the, uh, the very last of the Popes, uh, the last shall be first, Peter of Rome, Petros Romanus. Just as Peter was the first Pope, he'll also be the last Pope. He'll also be known as the Black Pope, um, not because he's physically black, but because uh, the Benedictines and the Jesuits actually wear black cassocks with red piping, whereas the Pope wears white as part of his order. Um, the Benedictines wear black, and so he'll be known as the Black Pope and be the last Pope of the Catholic Church before much of Rome is destroyed and much of the Catholic Church is completely destroyed. Um, and that's just phase one, phase one leading up to 2012. And I think with the collapse of all of these monetary and economic and social and support structures that people are going to start banding together and actually begin a new civilization that's based on things of the spirit, not things of the material. And it is the, the quantum leap in consciousness and the ascension frequency that brings people to this very, very high level of love and sharing and, and, and much more of a, uh, a, a tribal society that brings everybody together by 2012, but in the same breath, it will be this tribal society, this, uh, this gathering of Jedi Knights, if you will, that will be the, uh, the activation of the 144,000 that's spoken of in the book of Revelation and the multitudes upon multitudes dressed in white who follow these empowered prophets and saints um, that are the ones who fight the last great war against the dragon of the kings of the east, the armies of the 200 million that comes down somewhere around the year to 2018 or so, between 2018 and about 2020. Um, going further than that, uh, you know, I see a, a very, very large meteor hitting the planet sometime in 2027 and 2028. Knocks the planet slightly off kilter for about seven years or so. 2034 brings extraterrestrial intervention for the first time, something called the Day of Appearance, where every craft in this whole sector of space appears for one day. They move the planet into its proper orbit, fix the rotation, clean up the atmosphere, and that's it. They just disappear. They don't help us. They just put the planet back to where it's supposed to be. <clears throat> and that this is the precursor for the, um, the birth of the next Messiah, um, who's a woman, by the way, who calls herself Emanuela, and by the time she's four or five years old, she discovers the Ark of the Covenant, the Staff of Ra, the Caduceus, a massive amount of ancient Atlantean technology that transmutes and transforms matter, almost like a teleporter, if you will. Uh, she's five or six years old. By the time everybody on the planet recognizes her as the physical incarnation of some amazing angelic force, and um, she becomes the, uh, the leader of a, of a loosely confederated, I wouldn't say world government, but world confederacy, if you will, that, um, that then uh, brings peace and prosperity to the world. By 2050, 
The entire planet is completely rebuilt by 2060, 2075. There's travel to other planets. There's people on the moon. There's people on Mars. Um, it begins a, a golden age of of, uh, of human expansion and development. So it's not that far away when you're thinking, for example, you know, we're going through a 40-year exodus period that began in 1999 and ends in approximately 2039 with the coming of the Messiah um, that has been prophesied by the Great Pyramid of Giza, by the, um, the Great Pyramid of Chichen Itza, by the Mayan calendar, by the ancient prophets. Um, and I think she takes everybody by surprise. Everybody's certainly expecting, you know, Jesus to come down on a beam of light instead of, um, which the Christ force does come on a beam of light with the saucers and the whirlwinds at her heels, if you will. Um, but there's a body of evidence in the Old Testament that shows that this next Messiah will be the twin flame of Christ, so to speak. And it'll be a woman very much with the motherly, nurturing nature that will help to rebuild, rebuild the world as we know it.